one of the great moments, maybe the great moment in Davos history. Rutger Bregman is the author of Utopia for Realists, and he joins us now. Mr. Bregman, I, I, I can't stop laughing just listening to that. And, and part of that makes me wonder, are you the first person ever to note that people are flying private to talk about global warming and that none of them mention tax avoidance? Has anyone ever said that before at Davos? Oh, I'm not sure. I'm not an expert on Davos history, but it is a bit hypocritical, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, yes, yes, it is. I, and, and others have noted that. We've noted it on this show. We've just never gone to Davos and said it out loud as you did. So if I was wearing a hat, I would take it off to you. What was the, what response did you get? Uh, I mean, they were not very happy with me, but I'm just... Just, a, I think, a, a, a random Dutch historian who's basically saying whatever on, around the globe is thinking. You know, the vast majority of Americans for years and years now, according to the polls, uh, including Fox News viewers and including Republicans, are in favor of higher taxes on the rich. You know, higher inheritance taxes, higher top marginal tax rates, uh, higher wealth taxes. It's all really mainstream. But no one's saying that at Davos, just as no one's saying it on Fox News, right? And I think the, the, the explanation for that is quite simple, is that most of the people in Davos, but also here on this channel, have been bought by the billionaire class. You know, you're not meant to say these things. So I just went there and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to say it, just as I'm saying it right here on this channel. Well, what was interesting, I thought, about what you said was that you noted something. I mean, many people have called for higher taxes. Well, not on this channel, is it? I mean, almost all of the pundits on this channel for years have been against higher taxes, right? Even though the, the vast majority of Americans is in favor of it. I mean, I would, I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, it would be interesting to know how many hours of Fox you've watched, but I'm interested in what you said about tax avoidance. So yeah. just because someone faces a specific tax rate does not mean that person pays that tax rate at all. I don't think Netflix, for example, pays any tax. Mm -hmm. at all. So mm -hmm. what would you do specifically to make certain that this class of people pays what they're supposed to pay? Well, it's about multiple things. So we should really crack down on tax paradises and on tax avoidance. That's a major issue. But it's also about having higher taxes. So in the 1950s, for example, in the 1960s, in the golden age of capitalism, as historians called it, we had top marginal tax rate for the very rich. Uh, of about, you know, 70, 80, 90 percent, actually, under under Eisenhower, the Republican president. And this was also, you know, one of the best periods in American history. Same, same is true for the UK and, and the rest of Europe. Um, so as a historian, for me, it's all not, you know, it's, it's really not rocket science. We should go, just go back to, to simple and straightforward solutions from the, from the past. That's not really an issue. I mean, work the same way with an entirely different economy. Well, I, th I think it would. I mean, uh, America is still pretty much the most powerful country in the world, right? So, um, if it if it really would want to, it could easily crack down on uh, on tax paradises. But the thing is, I mean, you guys have brought into power a president that doesn't even want to show its own tax well, returns. Uh, I mean, who knows how many billions he has hidden in the Cayman Islands or in Bermuda. 
Um, so I think the issue really is, is, is one of corruption and of people being bribed and of not being, you know, not talking about the real issues. Uh, what the family, you know, what the Murdochs basically want you to do <laughs> is to scapegoat immigrants instead of talking about tax avoidance. So I'm, I'm glad you're now finally raising the issue. But that's what's been, been happening for the past couple of years. Uh-huh. And I'm taking, I'm taking orders from the Murdochs? Is that what you're saying? No, I mean, it doesn't work that directly. But, I mean, you've been part of the Cato Institute, right? You're, you've been a senior fellow there for years. You've been, you've been taking their dirty money. They're funded by Koch billionaires, you know? Wait, why don't you tell me how it does work? Well, it works by you taking their dirty money. It's as easy as that. I mean, you are a millionaire funded by billionaires. That's what you are. And I'm glad you now finally jumped the bandwagon, you know, of people like Bernie Sanders and AOC. But you're not you're not part of the solution, uh, Mr. Mr. Carlson. You're part of the problem, actually. It's true, right? It's true, right? That all the all the anchors, all the anchors on Fox, they're all millionaires. How is this possible? Well, it's very easy. You're just not talking about certain things. It doesn't even Fox doesn't even play where you are. It doesn't play where you are. Well, have you heard of the internet? I can watch things whatever I want, you know. I have, actually. I, I, I can't say I'm a great fan of your show, but I do my homework when you invite me on your show. So, I mean, you're probably not going to air this, uh, but I went to Davos to speak truth to power, and I'm doing exactly the same thing right now. You might not like it, but you're a millionaire funded by billionaires, and that's the reason why you're not talking about these issues. Yeah, only now. Come on, you jumped the bandwagon. You're all like, oh, I'm against the globalist elite, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's not very convincing, to be honest. Why don't you go f*** yourself, you tiny brain, and I hope this gets picked up. Because you're a moron. I tried to give you a hearing, but you were too f***ing You can't handle the criticism, can you? There's a war on alternative yeah, uh, welcome to Literary Hangover. I'm Matt Leck. With me, Chris Leal. Hello. Is this, I think, the fourth time on this? Uh... Yeah, sounds about right. That was uh, Rutger Bregman, the author of the book we're discussing today, and uh, AOC follower, clout chaser, uh, hmm. Tucker Carlson. Ted Cruz seems to be these days, too. Yeah, that's weird. I don't know if we even have time to untangle that. that. Yeah, I didn't want to veer us off course. Stay away from him, AOC, is all I have to say, but... Um, it's funny that uh, Tucker Carlson, he mentions like, oh, do I take my orders from Rupert Murdoch? Uh, and we have this good little bit of audio from uh, <laughs> this time with Bub and the Love Sponge. Here's that audio. Example: Sean Hannity was set to broadcast live from a tea party. And Rupert Murdoch the day before said, no, we don't support the tea party. We don't support the Republican Party. We don't support any party. And Rupert Murdoch did pull Hannity off of broadcasting live from the Tea Party. Yeah, I think it was a little bit more complicated than that, but it was—I uh, think it was a—it was a miscommunication. Um, but look, I mean, you can go to the Tea Party events. I've been to a lot of Tea Party events. I spoke at a Tea Party event, and I wasn't—you know—I'm not running as a Tea Party candidate. I'm not giving money to Tea Party people. I just—you know—it's a—it's a great place to reach people. 
you know? Sure. But I, what, I, what I'm saying is, I, what I'm saying is at that point, Rupert Murdoch didn't want Hannity broadcasting from there. Yeah. Well, something happened. No doubt about that. I don't know if it was, was it Murdoch? Yeah, it was because Murdoch got, got, received the question. They said, hey, you guys, Fox News are part of Murdoch's the most powerful man Mur in America. I mean, Rupert Murdoch, I've got to give him credit. When you talk about media conglomerates, he really knows yeah. what he's doing. Yes. He is smart. He's very smart. Really smart and you're tough. His, you're his bitch. <laughs> I'm 100% his bitch. Whatever Mr. Murdoch says, I do. Exactly. <laughs> you know how you treat your migrant workers that shine up your Bentley and stuff? That Robert Murdoch could treat you that way. Yeah, so uh, there's, there's Tucker. Um, but uh, he was also made a bitch there by Rucker Bregman, uh, so much that they didn't air that segment. I would call Rucker Bregman, if anything, a effective communicator. Of a, a few things, a few things better, I think, than the left in America is uh, is going to communicate. And do you have any comment on the Tucker Carlson exchange? Well, I was just going to say it, it was a one-two punch. He went to Davos and basically punked them at Davos. I don't know who there was responsible for scheduling him to speak, but you know he spoke there and uh, did similar, you know, jujitsu. Um, well, that's on the what, stage. That's what's interesting is so the um, the Tucker Carlson uh, appearance was from February 2019, and the Davos uh, appearance was in January of 2019. And we can play that Davos thing a little bit. But what I like about the Tucker Carlson exchange is it effectively uh, defangs Tucker's attempted co-opting of populist economic appeals. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, he zeroed in right away about the people taking private jets to go talk about climate change. And, like, the left itself here, like, yeah, fuck all those people. Like, they're not going to solve climate change. We don't have any illusions they are either. Tax them. Yeah, it was really uh, quite masterful of him how he, you know, I use the word jujitsu, but it's like, the analogy continued. He, Tucker Carlson was leaning in. He was excited. He was like, oh, yeah, this, you know, anti-elitist message that I want to tap into. Let's do that. And uh, and then Bregman sort of like toyed with him, took a couple of bites at him, you know, like a couple of, you know, negs. Uh, and then eventually went for the kill and was like, you're not part of the solution. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. Like, him out. <laughs> we can toy around with like that. We agree here. And, and that's actually the thing I really like is. If I ever get invited on Fox News, um, one, uh, that, that'll be the last time I'm invited on Fox News. Like, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> gonna try to make that a normal thing. I'm gonna say something, and hopefully it's live. But even if it's not live, with, as Rutger Bregman demonstrates here, you've wasted Tucker Carlson's time, right? Like, uh, as a person who produces a show like this, I mean, obviously not to the millions of people, um, Tucker Carlson shows go out to, but, if we have like book an interview and that like half hour is just a wasted time, like that fucks up your schedule that affects. So yeah, what I'm saying is if you're on the left, don't, don't pull a punch here and then also record it yourself. Like Bregman got this, uh, this uh, producer to do. He recorded it with a cell phone. As a producer, Matt can sympathize with Carlson's, uh, you know, producer team. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is why I know like that's a point of attack. You are doing a good thing, even if that doesn't air. Bregman spooled this out perfectly, right? Like you, you, you get a few digs in there, but the thing is, is Tucker has to then decide: Do I want to go and address that, or do I just want to let that pass and try to continue on the charade as if we're in agreement here? I'm in agreement with this viral guy who just insulted Davos in a way that I'm trying to show that we're like trying to portray the right as the authentic critics of that. 
like those idiots. He towed the edge perfectly there. Yeah, so here's uh, here's Bregman at Davos, and this was in January of 2019. Talk about the the impact of he does uh, address what happens the when when you when you give people who need cash cash to pull themselves up is is uh, and the universal base the idea of a universal basic income. Sure. Well, for some perspective, I I mean I must first say this is my first time at Davos and. Uh, and I find it quite a bewildering experience, to be honest. I mean, 1,500 private yets have flown in here to hear Sir David Attenborough speak about, you know, how we're wrecking the planet. And, uh, I mean, I hear people talk in the language of participation and justice and equality and transparency. But then, I mean, almost no one raises the real issue of tax avoidance, right? And of the rich just not paying their fair share. I mean, it feels like I'm at a firefighters fighters conference and no one's allowed to speak about water. Right? <laughs> there was there was only one panel actually. Thank well, we've had two. You're the second well, of well, our panels. There, there so was only one panel. Let's go there. One. <laughs> one panel hidden away in the media center that was actually about tax avoidance. Yeah. I was about I was one of the 15 participants. So <laughs> something needs to change here. I mean, ten, 10 years ago, the World Economic Forum asked the question: What must industry do to prevent a broad social backlash? The answer is very simple. Just stop talking about philanthropy and start talking about taxes, taxes, taxes. We need to, I mean, just two days ago, there was a billionaire in here, uh, what's his name, Michael Dell. And uh, he asked the question like, name me one country where a top marginal tax rate of 70% has actually worked. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm a historian. The United States, that's where it has actually worked. In the 1950s, during (laughs) Republican President Eisenhower, you know, the war veteran. The top marginal tax rate in the U.S. was 91% mm-hmm. for people like Michael Dell. You know, the top estate tax for people like Michael Dell was more than 70%. I mean, this is not rocket science. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can talk for a very long time about all these stupid philanthropy schemes. We can invite Bono once more. But come on, it's we got to be talking about taxes. Yeah, That's it. Taxes, taxes, taxes. All the rest is bullshit, in, in my opinion. Thank you. <laughs> it's funny to hear actual, like, pearl clutching. Uh, that that's the actual, that's the sound of it. Let's go back a little bit. That is literal. Marp, come on! It's we got to be talking about taxes. Yeah, that's it. Taxes, taxes, taxes. All the rest is bullshit, in, in my opinion. Thank you. <laughs> <gasps> he said bullshit. Excellent uh, PR strategy too to sell books. I mean, oh, this is just uh, go and crash interviews. And, like, very excited for this. Like maybe I should open like a PR consultancy <laughs> for like how to sell a book is do do stunts that here's here's a novel idea use actual good ideas that need to be expressed throughout society to benefit everybody as part of your pr campaign jane goodall on the panel too jane goodall is on the panel she's 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 massively upstaged here um oh here we are here he is oh this guy here's here's one of those guys who was probably really upset by rutger's uh comments Ken Goldman from Silicon Valley. Um, I'm going to make a couple of comments, actually. Uh, I actually came because I do believe we have an issue here. But I have to say, honestly, this is a very one-sided panel. Um, it's <laughs> extremely one-sided. I was surprised the way we, cre- we created this panel. Oh. There's a MasterCard executive on the panel as well, so just put that out there. The conference Jane, is very one-sided. Can so. I talk, please? Yeah. Um, yeah, you, you like you swear words, too. Um, Jane, thanks for... I saw you yesterday at lunch, too. It was, it was quite good. Um, and we make uh, comments, swear words with anecdotes and so forth. Um, 
And all I've heard about here is talking about taxes. I haven't seen anything in correlation of growth, which I'll come back to it again. And just a couple of comments. Uh, today, the U.S. basically has the lowest unemployment rate ever, the lowest black unemployment rate ever, oh, lowest God. youth Sounds unemployment familiar. ever. Uh, we've actually reduced poverty around the world. No one's talking about that. Sorry. Just have to point out these are long-term trends and not necessarily good. Uh, I mean, as Rucker Bergman points out with the 15-hour work week stuff, but we'll get to that later. That at all. People negated philanthropy. Just read a couple weeks ago the article on Bill Gates and what he's done in Africa and reduced the malaria, reduced the polio. So why, why don't we talk about that? Um, so really I have a question for the panel. Uh, and yes, I, I agree. Uh, tax avoidance is probably a big issue, probably a bigger issue than we think. Probably. Uh, but instead of taxes, what else, do you, uh, instead of redistributing wealth, what are we talking about in terms of creating wealth? You know, frankly, what people really want, what really want is a dignity of a job. <laughs> and we've given more jobs in the U.S. We've increased the minimum wage in Southern California with the minimum wage going to $15. may not be a lot, but it's up from 7 So i like for the panel to talk about beyond taxes, which every one of you have talked about. The only thing you've talked about in this whole panel on inequality. <laughs> what can we really do to solve and help solve inequality over time beyond taxes? So, yeah, those are the two big media splashes Rutgers made. Uh that have put his book uh, on the radar. And the book is, should probably uh, roll this out, <clears throat> Utopia for Realists, How We Can Build the Ideal World. Uh, and it's been through a number of iterations. Uh, but uh, it's written by Rutger Bregman. He's a popular historian from uh, the Netherlands. Um, he's He was born April 26th, 1988, so... He's yeah. uh he's he's older than both of us, but yeah. not by much. We gotta get to work. <laughs> I know, god damn it. Um, so uh, yeah, just interpret any negative comments uh, as uh, as professional <laughs> jealousy. jealousy. He's been uh, working as a journalist for Der Correspondent uh, since 2013. Uh, he wrote. He's written a few other books, um, not in English. I don't, as far as I know, but one's the History of Progress. So this is kind of his his uh, theme here. Um, uh, this book actually originally came out in 2016, so he got his publicity going a little bit late. I think that might it might have just been translated later. I don't quite have that mm. info here, but oh, if that's the U.S. edition or not, you know. right? Exactly. And it was it was a compilation of his magazine pieces, and actually, that's a funny thing about being a magazine writer. And this isn't a criticism of Bregman. Um, I think the same thing applies to somebody like Hitchens. Is because you review a bunch of smart ideas that other people sort of come up with you be people sort of credit you with popularizing those even though they're not yours and you become this sort of like record become and he even has talks about it or he even talks about it in his um press tour where he's like the ubi guy all of a sudden um right yeah because i mean the book is uh i mean it's a great book um and again not a knock on him I, he's doing a great job um mm-hmm. but it's not uh like any of the individual you know pieces of information are revolutionary right he's he's making a very like straightforward case for this uh which is you know been made elsewhere but needs to be made louder and more effectively and he's a very effective communicator i mean his analogies with the uh you know at davos being 
what is it, uh, a firefighting conference and not being able to talk about water. Right. You know? yeah, yeah. Um, and, and throughout the book, you know, he makes a lot of good, uh, you know, analogies. I, I liked his one about uh, poor people and how we stigmatize that. And uh, it actually being like comparing it to a computer and it being overloaded and stuff. Yeah, actually, he's uh, that that uh, basically his idea. And I think it's chapter um, three or four. But anyway, one of them where he basically he, he argues that I think very persuasively that being poor is not a problem of character. It's a problem of lack of money. Uh, and those things don't follow from each other. That he had a TED talk called something very similar to that that I think was even maybe his first big taste at, I guess, minor thought leading or whatever you want to call it. But, um, oh, yeah. Poverty isn't a lack of character. It's a lack of cash. That's from April 2017. That billionaire jumping. All right. You know, the billionaire sympathizer jumping up. And, Hilarious. Well, what about rich people? Stop yeah. talking. <laughs> Immediately. It's like, well, black people are working. Well, this is the thing. I mean, you can already see it there. And I've been talking about this a lot lately is my prediction for what you're going to see from the wealthy as it becomes clear that the rest of society doesn't want to put up with their shit anymore um, is what we talked about in Democracy and Chains episode, which is that rich people should become a protected class and have certain Mm -hmm. rights and property rights should basically be like you can't go at property rights just like you can't discriminate. They basically had their foot on that lever that's like the that's the reason you know there's the electoral college and the senate it feels like you know historically or whatever it's like yeah exactly protections of the quote-unquote minority and it's like uh yeah the people with money yeah and (laughs) now i mean they they like to hide it it's like a shell game because you see scott walker talking about why justifying um gerrymandering uh basically saying that it's unfair that there's more people in cities than the countryside and if you affected that, then the cities would get more representation. It's like, yeah, man, there's more people there. Right. Um, uh, he believes uh, strongly in the in the voting rights of land. Yeah, exactly. Less concerned about the voting rights of black people and, you know, minorities I mean, broadly. But uh, land in particular needs to be represented. And, you know, we have to be honest. Uh, in terms of wh- what this country was set up to do, he's not wrong. Yeah, I mean it's bad and it should be changed, but he's not wrong about um, the lineage. That's the weird thing about all this right wing stuff is they can't. I think what they're upset about and why they say the left is winning the culture war is because they can't say they want the things that you know basically the founding fathers wanted them to inherit, like very like a um, like a racially stratified country. But uh, anyway. <laughs> Happy Fourth of July, everybody! Before we get into the first chapter here, I just want to look at the cover, and there's a blurb there: "Bold thinking, fresh ideas, and lively prose." And that's attributed to our good friend Stephen Pinker, uh, which is to me a red flag. I'm, I'm not a Stephen Pinker fan, as you uh, pointed out. There are some. You know, things are getting better in terms of extreme poverty sort of stats in the early on in the book, which Steve Pinker probably, I think, probably just read to that part and uh, (laughs) stopped reading. He's like, let me just put that up front and then that's all he needs to know. Um, But what I what kind of saved it for me is uh, I was and we're going to go from this Rutger Bregman, How to Build a Better World. This was published on April 3rd, 2019 by the How to Academy. And uh, Bregman 
takes a shot at Pinker, even though he blurbed his book. Wow. Um, Holds no punches. I know. He, this, is, this is really where, more than the Tucker or the Davos thing, it's going at Pinker that really... Um, Made you fall in love. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I don't want to spoil my conclusion on this. So. And what has driven that, do you think? I mean, what, what, across that period of four or five years, what are the main governing forces that have driven that change? Well, partly it's just hard work. It's activism. It's, uh, yeah. So people were quite dismissive, for example, of the Occupy Wall Street. Many people still believe, oh, that wasn't effective at all. Well, actually, Occupy Wall Street got us Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Bernie Sanders got us people like the AOC, etc. Yeah. It, it, it all needs each other, right? It all builds on each other. Um, so this is, this is the issue I sometimes have with these... Uh, there have been quite a few books recently about how the world is better than ever, right? Yes. And it's true, right? I start my book with that as well, is that we've seen extraordinary declines of poverty and, and people are much healthier today. We are, we are basically richer, wealthier, healthier than ever. You know, we've seen tremendous progress in the past mm-hmm. two years. But then many of these books, like Stephen Pinker's books, for example, um, sort of, it feels as if they make the pain, stop, complain, point, stop complaining, oh, yeah. Yeah. everything is awesome. And they have this very sanitized view of history, yes. right? Where just some guy in the 70th century had some great idea, like, let's all be rational. And then 300 years later, everyone was healthy. Yes. Sort of that. Yeah. History doesn't work like that. You know, yes. people actually fought for those changes. And all those people who, for example, who first argued uh, for the abolition of slavery or for democracy or for equal rights for men and women, they paid a high price for that. You know, they were... Uh, persecuted and 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 ridiculed and dismissed, etc. Um, and I think that's often ironic with these these writers is that now they talk about oh these social justice warriors and they're yeah, not sorry. grateful for how wonderful everything is. Well, actually, those social justice warriors were were the ones making all this progress possible in the past two three hundred years. Because the interesting. So there he is again. I love that take. Um, yeah. It's very similar with ones I make. I mean that you can. Um, quibble with certain elements of uh, online social justice culture, I guess. But the idea that it's, it represents a problem and not part of the solution to me is um, wrongheaded, uh, to say the least. And I, I love that he's not he's willing to specifically men- mention Pinker, who is who's one. I mean, there are plenty of people you could go at that let, are more fringe than Pinker and probably less less of a respected figure. Like I think, I think Pinker is still generally, I mean, I mean, he gets all the like sort of Harvard speaking stuff and stuff like that. But uh, puts a respectable veneer. I think a Pinker is just basically a modern Pangloss. Um, but it's very funny that Rucker uh, got him to blurb his book. As he mentions, he starts his book off with the ideal, with like that sort of idealistic uh, optimism thing. You know, the Thomas Hobbes. We went from a nasty Brutus and short, uh, short existence to the Industrial Revolution. Uh, the statistic that he gives, by the way, is uh, in 1820, 84% of the world lived in extreme poverty. And in 1981, 160 years later, 44%, half of that, uh, right. in extreme poverty. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, yeah. So 1820 was 84%. 1981 was 44%. And today, it's under 10%. Does it say what constitutes poverty? Is it calorie-based? or I don't know. Uh, I'm sure there's a cost of living index that includes, you know, uh, c- 
like living expenses and things like that. Well, he, he, whatever whatever the metrics are, uh, he does make a persuasive case uh, that we've reached a sort of approximation of the medieval utopia, uh, cocaine, uh, spelled C-O-C-K-A-I-G-N-E, which is basically like uh, all this, any food you want, sort of like, and basically Bregman says, like, this is fast food. And I sort of agree with him about that. Like the amount of things, especially now you have seamless, like it's ridiculous. The amount of consume, the amount of consumption you can do very easily uh, as a, as a citizen of the world now. Um, and he said, and he says, I think uh, something a lot of the left agrees with that. This, this has led to sort of end of history on we, um, like, where do we go from here? Is it some a technocracy uh, governed by, you know, advertising and pharmaceuticals? And, you know, so it's not, he's not a utopian. He's not a opti- techno-optimist or anything like that. He's, uh, he's, he's critical here. Um, Bregman? Bregman, yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, the statistics are, are fair. We, you and I have gone back and forth on these before. Um and I basically think that they're used for overly detailed representations to create a misleading uh, idea about general trends well, and, and political, especially when it becomes political. Well, once again, I mean, Bregman just, sort of, you know, he hit it, it on the head when he, I mean, that's true. Like there's those facts are true. And then the question is. Uh, you know, there's a group of people using that in a defensive mechanism, you know, and trying to dismiss criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there's another line of argument, which is saying, you know, that that is true, you know, but at the same time, there are still these other inequities um, in, you know, the disparity between that being true and our current state of affairs. You know, there's something to be learned there, something we should be doing differently, um, which is a different message. Yeah. And one thing that's interesting about this book is, uh, like we said, he originally published it in 2016. And he, it's a sort of thing where he, it's a calling for something. And that something has actually sort of now arrived, as he suggests here, um, in terms of uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. By the way, uh, not as good as Ilhan Omar. I just need to put that out there. Ooh. But uh, just going to say AOC, hey, I still love you if you're listening. Yeah. For basic income, actually. Absolutely. Let, I mean, let's, let's meander through the book a bit um, and its arguments, because what, I think it's very important to emphasize that the book, A, is very readable, and also it's about, it's not just about economics and public policy, it's also about psychology and, and ideas and their power. Um, and one of its central contentions is that when the crash happened, there was a kind of moment of cognitive dissonance, which you, mm. which you talk about. Um, th- there was no people at least didn't think it was a readily available idea or set of ideas with which to deal with it. Yeah, exactly. And, and to, to explain this point properly, maybe we should go back all the way to the 50s. Yeah. Because what always fascinates me about the rise of this thing we call neoliberalism yes. or the whole Reagan and Thatcher phenomenon is that it didn't start in the 70s or the 80s. It actually started in the 50s with people like the economist Milton Friedman or the Austrian philosopher I, Friedrich von Hayek who came together in this place called uh, Mont Pelerin in Switzerland. Cool. And they founded this Mont Pelerin Society. And back then they said, we're the real radicals right now. You know, in the 50s, everyone was basically a socialist, or at least the came to the big government. Mm-hmm. But we had tax rates yep. of like 80, 90% for yep. 
for the very rich, unimaginable right now, but that worked pretty well in this golden age of capitalism. Um, so they said to themselves, we're the radicals, and what we need to do is start developing idea, our ideas, you know, building our institutions, our think tanks. And this will take years and years and years. But at some point, there will be a crisis in the current system, um, and then we can take over. This is exactly what happened in the 70s with the stagflation and the oil crises, and then Reagan and Thatcher came on the scene. Um, but if you want to understand those politicians, you really got to go back all the way to the 50s. Now, what I think happened in 2008 is that we had another crash, obviously, where it was a great opportunity to, you know, to inject new ideas, basically in the bloodstream of, of thinking. Um, but they were, just weren't there. So the issue with many people on the so-called, how do you want to call it, the left or progressives, was that they knew very well what they were against, against a lot of things, right? Against austerity, against homophobia, against racism, against growth, against climate change, basically against everything, uh, but not what they were for. Like they, they, they had sort of... Before he gets to the part I agree with, I'll just... Uh point to or hit on for the first time one of my critiques of this book is that uh bregman suggests that this is a result of a lack of ideas or ideas not being there at the right place at the right time uh, and so forth i am a bit more cynical than that i think it's a lot more about i don't think neoliberalism for instance won because it was the best idea it won because it was the an idea serviceable to people in power and so you fundamentally have to change power it's not just about having the best ideas and making people adopt it the whole idea that you need some kind of utopian vision before you actually want to go next um so that was a problem back then but the exciting thing actually in that respect the book is already a little bit outdated maybe because in the past couple of years um uh, things have changed so much if you look at a politician like AOC now in the United States, I mean, she's, she's the person I've always been dreaming about, the kind of politician, right? Yes, I think. Um, so that's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's probably something his publisher didn't like him to say. His, his book's a little bit outdated already. It's a shame Bregman can't run for the House seat or something. Yeah, too bad he's not American. Yeah. No, uh, he's not going to be a politician. Just uh, uh, he, he actually talks later in this. He's writing a book on altruism, I think. Hmm. You know, the uh, sharing instinct <clears throat> how we're not all greedy apparently so um chapter two entitled why we should give free money to everyone and here we get into ubi and he goes into a number of different case studies one in london a few in uganda malawi namibia turns out that uh free money is good um i mean what's your take on the ub the giving away money thing look i mean ubi uh people are increasingly talking about it you know bregman uh andrew yang you know his freedom dividend yeah which is i like the word dividend um that's clever messaging um but anyway uh the concept sounds kind of radical uh you know giving people free cash but um when you look at it from a structural perspective in the economy and you consider, uh, you know, just the changes in the workforce, um, and just fundamentally productivity, uh, which is what drives the economy implies doing more with less labor. Um, so if we're successful at that, it means we will 
produce more over time with less and less people, meaning there's always a downward pressure on, on the demand for labor uh, in a productive economy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in a long term anyway. And so eventually, uh, you know, we got lucky that we went from agriculture to industrial uh, and we found a new, uh, you know, massive industry to, you know, repopulate the labor force. But um, you have to consider if eventually people are working, you know, people are going to have to work less uh, time. We're going to have to spread that work around. And um, when you're when your economy is based, 70 percent of GDP is based on consumption, then at some point it makes sense to just uh, have direct cash transfers. Consumer bucks. Exactly. uh, For people to go and spend that, you know, uh, that's the most stimulative form of spending uh, is to give that money out to the people who will spend it. Uh, You know, rich people will be more likely to just put it in their bank account and interest. Uh, Interest uh, income is not as stimulative as, as, you know, the consumption income. Oh, yeah. We need to go to our good friend, Gordon Gecko, who uh, was on CNBC uh, back in the original original bernie uh 2016 campaign uh here he is uh and i think the uh cnbc people are a bit surprised that he endorses bernie but the reason he says is exactly this thing it's a it basically it's a it's not a production problem but a circulation problem that's a sort of keynesian exactly um take on this the presidential elections i'm curious we're asking everybody essentially who you think the best candidate for the economy would be? Bernie Sanders. Without a doubt. Why is that? What no question. Well, I think it's quite simple again. If you look at something called velocity of money, you guys know what that is, I presume. That means mm. how much gets spent and turns around. When you have the top 1% getting money, they spend 5 10% of what they earn. When you have the lower end of the economy getting money, they spend 100 or 110% of what they earn. As you've had a transfer of wealth Marginal to the propensity top and a transfer of, of income mm-hmm. to the top, you have a shrinking uh, a consumer base, basically, and you have a shrinking velocity of money. Mm-hmm. Bernie is the only person out mm-hmm. there who I think is talking at all about both fiscal stimulation and banking rules that will get the banks to begin to generate lending again as opposed to speculation. Okay. So from an economic point of view, it's straightforward. <laughs> it so, really is that simple mechanically, and it's crazy how obscured that that point is through the economy. And that's how I think this is the crux of this debate and why I think it's so interesting to me. This is the, on one side, to be overly reductive, you have the Keynes versus the Marx uh, side of this, right? And I think that's where the real debate is in the left. And I'm not, and um, I think... We'll get into the Alyssa Battistoni uh, discussion of UBI for dissent, which I, I, I 100% agree with. Um, I think it, it's the it's a necessary critique of UBI. But there's certain critiques of UBI from more orthodox Marxist sources. Uh, I forget the one that we both read. Um, really bad one? <laughs> yeah, not great. I mean, look, I think there are certain things about, for instance, I don't think we will get a... a um, a real UBI in this country that takes away the cudgel that forces people to work. I just don't think we're ever going to agree to pass something like that with Congress. And so I agree that like, it's always one that's um, good enough to be super useful for significant structural change is unlikely in uh, to pass in any reasonable time frame. I think a bad one is inevitable though. But what I would say about Marxists is don't start talking, um, don't start sounding like the Peterson Foundation and talking about like deficit spending. Like that's not persuasive to anybody anymore. And if you rely on that, 
I mean, I'm not saying become like a modern monetary theory devotee that you can just spend whatever, for instance, but the, the, it mu- it's true enough to be functional um, to the point where that's where you... S- I don't know what you have to say. Yeah, the the bad criticism from that perspective seems to just be with it. They were just upset that they view that it sustains the life of this system, you know, but it, um, you know, I just feel that that's uh, disingenuous and I don't think that, you know, uh, I think it's a splitting hairs, basically. I mean, I think it it can and I think actually... um, well, I mean, Bregman admits that this does, it, it does, for instance, um, probably anesthetize, uh, you know, societal turmoil a little bit. And to the extent that it's doing that by alleviating poverty, it's hard to argue against for me. Um, I mean, I don't think it's, if you want to maintain a stable society, I don't think having poverty like America uh, has maintained is good for you. Right. Look. Um, it's an, uh, this is a time bomb and this is why this situation is inevitable because, uh, the United States has created the economic, our economy is structured on consumption. As we already said, seven tenths of every dollar spent, spent on buying shit. Okay. And (laughs) when you have, you know, whatever the insane statistics are, you know, 1% owning, you know, as much as the bottom 90 or whatever it is. Um, you know, think about, uh, your heart as an organ, mm-hmm. you know, basically, and the money as this velocity of money, it's blood circulating through your body. And if you clog up an artery and all of a sudden all the blood is accumulating in one part, uh, you know, you can get by for a while, but then there's these massive attacks and there's some sort of correction. It's just unsustainable as a system. Yeah. Um, and so something, you know, has, has to give at some point. And as Bregman points out, um, Solving poverty is actually easily doable uh, with our current budget expenditures. Uh, we could abolish it. The problem I have with Bregman is uh, I think there's a reason we haven't done that beyond people just haven't gotten the idea. I think like there, like that's something to be maintained. Yeah, well, and that's why he doesn't just come at it from some rational, you know, analytical, you know, perspective. He has great analogies, as we've already alluded to, about, you know, um, one of the stigmatizations is that, oh, these poor people are poor because, you know, they're just not frugal enough or industrious enough or thrifty enough. They don't work hard enough. Uh, It's their own fault. And it's like, well, no, uh, there are results of this systemic inequalities that exist, and this is what they look like. And, uh, you know, his analogy to computers being over uh, overloaded was great. And then in chapter two, he has a, a quote. Where he says, you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you don't have boots. Right. It's like, duh, you know, yeah, people yeah. boots. And it's interesting. That I think it, it he also dunks on microfinance, which was, I think, a big trend, especially in The Economist, like 15 years ago, for instance. And it ended up turning out it's a good way to make farmers commit suicide. Hmm. Um, and that's not a joke. Like in India, literally had it happened in like epidemic proportions um uh, but he the other thing that like he i think is more aware than say andrew yang who just to before like i think as a trash ubi i'm absolutely against it uh, happy to I've, I've been at war with the yang gang um on twitter significantly i will say in terms of framing the conversation it's good to have i mean it would be better if he had a better you know tighter argument on it you know they 
question to him right out of the gate, how are you going to pay for this? And he just had this, you know, deer in the headlights look on his face. Oh, yeah, he's definitely not ready for primetime. But, uh, you know, look, it's good that uh, people are talking, you know, that he's talking about it in general. I don't, I'll say, like, I don't like that just the way he decides to pay for it. I'm Uh, not pro-Yang, by the way. (laughs) Here's what I'll say. Here's, if Yang was talking like Rutger Bregman is talking about the UBI, I'd be pro-Yang. He's not, which is why um, it's, it's still beef, Yang. They do that for 20, 30 years, then they have their midlife crisis, and then they use all that money they extracted from the rest of the population to paint for the rest of their lives or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, and Bregman just ending a riff there on bullshit jobs, which, as we talked about, is a concept developed by other people, David Graeber specifically, um, and about how many people in the um, economy, regardless of how well uh, uh, remunerated their job is, feel like it could actually be done without society. It's not really contributing much. Um, and he goes on to talk about the... Uh, Soon they'll find robots agree with him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That this is, is <laughs> this is getting dangerously like a scene from Fight Club. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, Fuck to bring Club. it back to policy wonkery. Um, <laughs> um, again, one of the objections is how, how does this relate to the pre-existent and often invariably hugely complicated benefit system in, in, mm-hmm. in a society. I mean, you know, if you were to int- introduce a basic income in Britain, how would it, would it replace the benefit system? Would it be supplementary to it? How would mm-hmm. it work? It's important to emphasize here that there are many versions of basic income yeah. out there. So there are some really bad or even horrible versions of basic income that are being advocated. So there are some, for example, American libertarians who say, let's just abolish the whole welfare state yeah. And just give people one small cash grant. Yeah. I'm not in favor of that. In, th- in fact, I think that would be disastrous. Yes. Um, a basic income would really be a supplement to the great achievements of the 20th century, right? right? Universal health care, quality public education, and then a universal basic income or a guaranteed basic income. Uh, that's really the way I think about it. Now, how do you finance it? There are obviously a thousand ways to finance it, finance it. And I'd like to finance it in a way that it will reduce inequality. Uh, also important to emphasize here, there are ways that you could finance a basic income that it will actually increase inequality, right? So the devil is in the details here. Okay, well... Yeah, so that's the thing, is Bregman goes right into, you know, and Annie Lowry, who is also of the Washington Post, who, or maybe she's the New York Times now, um, who is also a proponent of, of uh, UBI-like schemes, talks about, you know, go after um, carbon tax, um, high-frequency f- high, high trading, um, progressive things basically the problem i have with andrew yang is the number one thing he says going he's going after is consolidating welfare programs and he mentions disability he's he was forced to clarify he doesn't mean ssdi uh he just means ssi but the problem with these sorts of things is like you can have a critique of uh means tested welfare programs as you know needlessly exclusionary in certain cases unfair you know there's lots of hoops there's all sorts of problems with them and they get looked down upon although i think that is lessened if everyone's getting a check from the government for instance but um you can cut those programs when you've solved that underlying problem in, in my opinion like when you've done something about um food accessibility then you can do something about food stamps that's not how you're paying for your UBI. I'm sorry. If you want to run as a Republican with that kind of UBI, be my guest. Because I think that would frankly be helpful if, if Yang was challenging 
Trump w- because I think his if he's UBI- primarying somebody. Yeah, exactly. I think his UBI is reactionary. There's a reason he goes on Dave Rubin and Ben Shapiro and talks about you know welfare Trojan horses and not. I mean, frankly, uh, nobody. This is just uh, this is just for literary hangover listeners. We're we usually don't like to get um, politicians on our programs, the programs I produce, but. Um, Unless they're Bernie Sanders, because he, he has open, we have a hotline for him. Mm-hmm. Um, but possible we have Yang on if he, I mean, actually, frankly, not after the debate. He has to, if he pulls like 5%, we might try to get him on and, and take him on on some of this stuff. Um, but I, I think, I think it's bad. I think it's, uh, I don't trust him. And I understand the stuff. And actually, Bregman agrees with you about the framing, like the citizen's dividend or whatever he calls it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I I worry about, and I, I, I this might be a bit too, I worry about that sort of nationalistic thing because I think there's a larger problem with UBI. Well, but go ahead. Um, look, so uh, he's right, and Bregman obviously who is consistently on point, uh, pointing out that there are people on opposing ends of the political quote unquote spectrum. And um, he, he goes into Nixon this. and Milton Friedman right. and all those people. And so going back to, you know, if you assume this inevitability in the economy and, you know, basically people's, most of people's jobs is just to recirculate money through the economy. Uh, and that's how we, you know, magically grow. Um, then you just want them to, you know, regurg, you know, spend that cash. Uh, then you have to think giving them cash directly rather than some archaic Byzantine system of like food stamps, for example. Like instead of just giving someone a thousand dollars, you know, I'm going to you know, spend a thousand dollars to give them, you know, I don't even know what the percentages are, but maybe like 650 bucks or $700 because then you have administration fees and then they create these actual stamps and then you have to have things set up for uh, businesses to accept them, you know, when it's just like, just give them the money, you know, this is wasteful spending. And Absolutely. So, yeah. Um, so, you know, it's a, it is useful, but you're right. You're going to, there's no point in doing that to solve this problem. If you're just shooting yourself in the foot by, by getting rid of everything else. And so, you know, I think, over time, there is room to get, you know, some of the most basic cash transfer programs, basically, like food stamps. Uh, this is just a more efficient version of that. But people will still need, um, you know, maybe supplemental income or they will need health care, obviously, uh, you know, or housing assistance or plenty of other things. And so, you know, I think politically, I, I, I think mathematically that that will there will be some benefit to streamlining or you know making basically our welfare system more sane and rational over time but you can't necessarily pitch that as you know we're just going to do this to to cut expenses you're doing this because you're going to grow revenues too yeah exactly i think the, my thing with ubi is the more decommodified essentials are in your society the more a ubi actually interests me right because I can tell you right now, um, a UBI would benefit this show substantially. If all of you listening to this had an extra thousand dollars a month that you could like spend, like that's going to Patreon, like shit like that, right? Like self-interested, I'd love it if lots of you had a lot more money. The problem is, so does your landlord. So do, for instance, like student uh, people who own like medical or student loan debt, like debt that, in my opinion, shouldn't even yeah, be paid it. back. Yeah, exactly. Cancel it. Like, and that's the thing is there are two two ways you can go about this. You can either just say abolish student or medical debt, or you can give the people money to pay back the people who own the debt that shouldn't have existed in the first place. <laughs> and I think that's that's why 
that's why UBI appeals to people on the right, I think. Um, and I mean, look, if you're a landlord, imagine, right? Like right. <laughs> you, you have, oh, you have a, th- I, I know for a fact you have a thousand more dollars a month in your pocket. Uh, sorry, rent is going up. I mean, at least 250. And then, and the problem with Yang is, you go, I don't want, my, my, my red line is this, and I recognize that this might seem unreasonable to some people, but this is as a uh, representative of the, the American left. No programs are redistrib- that are redistributionary are cut until you deal with those underlying problem- problems more specifically. Um, because I got in this argument with Scott Statins or Satins or something, who's a big Yang guy. And his header is literally like UBI. It's not left. It's not right. It's forward. And I got in an argument with him because Yang clarified that SSDI, which is like my understanding, it's a disability assistance. So think of things like wheelchairs or whatever. Um, the I'm average unable to work. Yeah, and the average is twelve hundred dollars. So it was it was unclear whether people would have to choose that or choose the thousand dollar Yang bucks, and they clarified, oh, that stacks. And everyone's like, yeah, see, that's good. Isn't Andrew Yang good? But it doesn't stack with all these other things. It doesn't stack with um, uh, uh, food stamps. It doesn't stack with SSI, another form of disability insurance, more uh, focused on income disparities, right? So why not just stack that? And like it, it would be like I would support it if it's stacked with all that stuff, right? right? And then they try to give you a runaround, like, well, those things are bad. It's like I know means tested programs are bad. Like I'm a socialist. I don't advocate any of that shit, right? Um but <coughs> that said, I'm not gonna take it from somebody because it's like they got it. Well, and so this may be, you know, a weird uh marriage of interests or perspectives on the show and you know to counter, you know, Buddha judge, um, when he was on stage the other week, um, you know, I, I think they were specifically talking about, uh, education or something like that. But, you know, if you had a proper UBI, it should go to everyone. Um, even wealthy people are just like, if, you know, Buddha judge in particular was talking about uh, tuition free college. And he was like, I don't believe billionaires kids, you know, should get free college. Like, well, guess argument. what? Their parents are going to be paying the taxes that yeah. are helping, you know, fund this. So yes, everyone should go because that's going to lessen resistance to the program. Yeah. You know, uh, everyone should get it. And, and maybe everyone, you know, gets a base level and then you could have income supplements, you know, uh, that help other, you know, that, that help, you know, in addition to that. And obviously if everyone has healthcare and other various forms of, you know, structural assistance, then, uh, you know, they need less cash for, you know, for, you know, just to exist basically. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but I, I do think, uh, you know, as you mentioned, I think the dividend, I think the framing is very important. I think, um, I think national service and, uh, to take the other side, you know, not to, you know, Buttigieg has his faults, but, you know, I think people should be talking about national service as an element. I do think there is some, element of uh you know dignity of work i think there is something to that and people are going to want to and and not even just of like oh i'm getting this money uh i feel guilty but like people need something to do with their time they value that they need something to put their energies forth into and you know some people are going to be very good about um finding that on their own a hobby or an interest or something but some people you know look have a a national service you know people spend some time and contribute and then that entitles that them to this set of you know, uh, options, just like when people served in the war, you know, when you got the GI Bill. Yeah, I mean, the, like the Citizens Conservation Corps, except not whites only, I think would be a right. good thing. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, it is a shame to see Buttigieg uh, 
of the he of the uh, Marxist father and the uh, Bernie uh, report in college recently said like it's not us versus them to billionaires and he's been fundraising really good since then. Let's see what oh, what else. Oh, here's a bit more Rucker Bregman um, addressing the idea of a Trojan horse UBI, and he makes a case of why he thinks the left needs to actually push for it. And I'm skeptical. My I guess my original take was that the left should let like liberals deal with UBI and worry about decommodifying healthcare like Medicare for all and you know get housing and get get the important stuff the tough stuff and let um UBI to the other people but Bregman makes the case that the left should be on the playing field here the question about um how do we make sure that you know we aim for a version of basic income um that, is, that would actually improve life for the vast majority of people? Well, here my answer is very simple. Um, make sure that you take the idea for yourself. You know, I, I've, I've, I've read quite a lot of pieces like, uh, of authors who say, oh, basic income is a horrible story. It's a neoliberal Trojan, ho- Trojan horse. Look, I heard Mark Zuckerberg say that he's in favor of basic income and Elon Musk is as well, so it must be a horrible idea. <laughs> I don't know, that's, that's such lazy thinking, isn't it? Uh, as I said, there are horrible versions, bad versions of basic income out there uh, that only puts more pressure on us to, to properly define what we're talking about and come up with the, the versions that do make a difference for the vast majority of people. Um, and then final. Yeah, so I, th- I think, that's, uh, I think that's, that's actually why we're doing this show. <laughs> yeah, well, that and also I view that as, look, it's... Um, it's something to be watched and managed, but it's good that you have the other, some people on the other side, quote unquote, making the case for this to some of the hardest people that it would be for you to possibly, you know, reach and convince. Yeah. You know, even if, even if it gets you, you know, two thirds of the way there and you have to really hammer out the last third, like at least they're doing a lot of legwork for you. You know, I mean, I, uh, I'm an optimistic, I think, uh, you know, in that perspective. Yeah, it depends. I, I don't want any help from the right on that. Um, actually, let's go to uh, Alyssa Battistoni. Uh, she wrote a, uh, it's a review more of Andy Stern's um, UBI, but she also touches on record Bregman's. Andy Stern being like some labor guy who uh, re- discovered UBI um, as a as a solution to the the to union weakness, basically. Um, and he has the trash UBI, the, the Yang thing, where immediately you start going after um, welfare programs. Um, um, so I'm going to play some selections here from uh, Bad Estonia. And uh, uh, I think this is the, definitely the best thing I've read on UBI so far. And I think she, we've had her at least on Majority Report. She's a Jacobin writer, but this was in Dissent. It's often noted that Milton Friedman as well as Martin Luther King, Jr. supported basic income and the new generation of advocates is similarly eclectic, running the gamut from Trump-supporting venture capitalists like Thiel to fully automated luxury communists like Peter Fraze. There are, in short, many different reasons for supporting Ubi and just as many versions of what it could be. One version functions as a kind of noblesse oblige a handout to the unfortunates being made obsolete by robots smarter and more efficient than they are. Another version aspires to egalitarian universalism and challenges the legitimacy of privately accumulated wealth. There's a version that sees Ubi as the spark for a generation of entrepreneurs, and another that simply attempts to stave off a revolt of the precarious masses. 
basic income is therefore often posited as a post-ideological solution suited to a new era of politics, the odd confluence of interest from the left and right tends to be read as a sign that political positions should be eschewed in favor of rational compromise. But Uba's cross-ideological appeal is the bug, not the feature. Because basic income is politically ambiguous, it also has the potential to act as a Trojan horse for the left or right, left critics fret that it will serve as a vehicle for dissolving the remains of the welfare state, while proponents herald it as the capitalist road to communism. The version of basic income we get will depend, more than policies with a clearer ideological valence, on the political forces that shape it. Which is why the prospect of pushing for basic income in the United States right now when the right controls everything should be cause for alarm, UBA's supporters on the left should proceed with caution. But that doesn't mean basic income is a lost cause. To the contrary, Capitalism's inability to provide a means of making a decent living for the over 7 billion people currently alive is one of its most glaring defects and one of the most significant opportunities for the left to offer an alternative. A universal basic income, though not the only answer, might point us in the right direction. So yeah, and that critique is similar to the one Majority Report has had of the Young Turks uh, Wolfpack project, which uh, intends to call a constitutional convention to get money out of politics and the second you do that is the second the Koch brothers swoop in and are like oh yeah by the way balanced budget amendment motherfuckers yeah we've talked about that before how that appeals especially with with so many people fed up you know with the establishment they're like let's you know rewrite the constitution people are just like yeah Yeah. and it's like guess who holds all the cards right now yeah you know guess who's in power not even regardless of if the republicans had controlled all the chambers and the the executive branch currently uh which they do even if that wasn't the case like inequality and the and the hold you know of the economic elites are still there there are lobbyists with legislation ready to go you know that they could be tailored to whatever it is that they want that is too complex you know for the average person to really discern uh you know uh, you know the devil in those details um but the same isn't said for, you know, the, the, the common citizen and the average man. I mean, that's we don't have uh, hungry lobbyists writing legislation for us. Right. Also, I, I was going to say that, um, I mean, you're right. I mean, um, she there's hesitancy on this and it is something to watch. Um, but uh, UBI, you could easily see is just a few steps removed from the next, you know, conservative um uh, welfare reform plan, you know, and we're going to save, we're going to slash X hundred billion or X percent from the welfare budget. And we're yeah. just going to reform it with UBI. Boom. And we're just going to give them their cash and wipe our hands and we'll be done here. Um, yeah. I mean, the problem that I think they're going to have in that best only points to it in a clip in a part. I don't think we I have clipped, but they, the Democrats suck so bad at um, appealing to what really ails average people that they if they actually did some economic populism they could be electorally very difficult but instead when trump does like an infrastructure program it's like making toll roads and shit right like it's not like it's act- public private investment it's not the u.s government is going to spend a trillion dollars it's the u.s government is going to spend x amount you know and we're going to match private funds and in exchange for that, we're going to sell off the rights for all this infrastructure that private companies are going to build that you'll then pay twice for it. Your taxes will go to construct it and then you'll pay tolls, not until the project is paid off and you get your, and then it's free as it used to be. It's indefinite tolls forever. 
Yeah. Um, okay, let's continue with uh, Battistone here. The view of Ubi as the foundation of the gig economy, meanwhile, is a tacit acknowledgement that capitalism can't pay its full costs a transfer of responsibility for a living wage from private employers to the public. Then there's an even worse case for Ubi as pressure outlet. Stern argues that basic income supporters would do well to convince the anxious rich that it's their best bet to avoid the guillotine amidst growing inequality and desperation. But you don't need to be Robespierre to be suspicious of a proposal that explicitly announces its intent to protect the rich from working class rage particularly when one of the major questions of Ubi is where the free money will come from. Stern cautions Uba supporters against advocating a soak the rich tax on political grounds. Yeah, the broad yeah. coalition that Ubi requires will be impossible if the rich are against it from the start. Alas, this is already the metric for most policies. Right. Instead, he proposes to fund Uba by cashing out major welfare programs, food stamps, housing assistance, the earned income tax credit, and charging a value-added tax on consumer goods, more tentatively, he considers a wealth tax, a financial transaction tax, and cuts to military spending. But funding a basic income by cannibalizing existing welfare programs and imposing regressive consumption taxes perversely places the burden of subsidizing low wages on the poor and working class people making them in the first place. Andrew Yang. That this is a meaning proposal put forth by a former labor leader is a measure of the left's weakness. Meaning if you're, meaning if you're redistributing wealth... Um, then if you're just circulating it amongst people that have nothing, it doesn't really do a lot. And indeed, Stern's view of labor's political prospects is remarkably dim. In fact, Ubi is explicitly posed as a solution to the problem of declining union power. It was time for me to look beyond unions for answers, Stern declares in the first 30 pages. Instead, he proposes a basic income party that could run candidates in every congressional district and threaten a tax strike the weapon of the wealthy until Congress agrees to vote on a basic income package. Okay. It's obviously a non-starter. But it reveals the limits of Stern-style unionism, start out collaborating with Walmart on health care, and soon you'll hope only for the dwindling state to throw a few bucks at the reserve army of Uber drivers tasked with ferrying the rich from one gentrified enclave to the next. Instead of fighting off the dystopian future, settle into the interregnum of the present, with all its morbid symptoms. But as the writer Ben Tarnoff has pointed out, the places where technological development hasn't produced a dystopian, jobless future, like Sweden, don't just have technology, they also have strong unions and a robust welfare state. The kind of starkly unequal society that Stern and other Uba futurists fear wouldn't just come about because the robots arrived, it would come about because only a few people owned them. And uh, upcoming here is Battistoni's critique of Bregman, and uh, she offers a different reading of a Keynes quote that Bregman offers, and I think it's a little bit more sophisticated one. Recognizing this, Bregman explicitly advocates massive redistribution of money, time, and robots, that is, of income, work, and the means of production. All wealth is socially produced, he argues, and so it should be shared accordingly. It's not so much that this time is different, it's that we have the chance to make it so. Though he stops short of inciting us to seize the robots outright, 
he advocates taxes on the wealthy and on financial transactions as a means to both fund basic income and disincentivize certain activities like banking that make money without creating anything of value. Though Bregman's version of Ubi is far more appealing on the merits, his political program is disappointing. Ideas change the world, Bregman declares, and Ubi is such an obviously good idea that we just need to spread the word. The last line of the book belongs to Keynes, the book's implicit hero, who famously said of ideas, indeed, the world is ruled by little else. But of course, it's ruled by many other things money and power chief among them. The 15-hour work week Keynes predicted didn't come to pass because the idea alone wasn't enough. More importantly, Keynes was talking about ideology rather than ideas per se, about the systems of thought that underpin our assumptions whether or not we know it, not just clever notions. Per se is the uh, misreading there. And, uh, and then here's the last section of this that I want to play. The debate about basic income is about the obligations we have to one another, the origins of property, the ends of human life, the shape of our society. And when these broader visions are translated into policy, they don't simply suggest a shared plan to give people money they offer drastically different accounts of how much money people should get, where it should come from, and who should get it. The leftist futurist version of basic income is often described as a non-reformist reform, per Van Perigis's quip, a goal that's achievable within capitalism but that has the potential to change the conditions of capitalism enough to lead beyond it. This is a very, I think, tantalizing concept, the non-reformist reform. And I think where people are social democrats or uh, versus democratic socialists, I think, is the degree to which you believe that uh, reforms through uh, institutions can lead to a revolution to a class of society or so, or, or some such. But uh, I think I think a UBI as instituted based on my dictatorial control would be a non-reformist reform because it would be on top of everything regardless of what assistance you're getting now that includes food food stamps that includes um well maybe we would get rid of the uh um mortgage deductions and stuff like that um especially for like second houses i don't know like maybe for second you probably want it for first yeah. only because of the spending multiplier houses are one of the big the biggest expenses although housing policy is going to be a tough thing for climate change if we're thinking about that we might need to me, might need more renters in the future than uh, suburban homeowners, but uh, that's a topic for another uh, subject. Basic income is the fully automated monorail to luxury communism, where we all own the robots and everyone gets what they need. This UBI isn't a backstop for bad jobs, but the material condition for human fulfillment. But not just any income will do, for it to be a genuine step toward a post-work society. It has to be genuinely universal and unconditional, provide enough income to actually live on, and supplement rather than replace the welfare state. This UBI is the one that draws from the Marxist feminists who pointed out the unwaged labor of social reproduction in the 1970s, the working class women of color who fought for the rights of welfare recipients in the 1960s, and the architects of the freedom budget who attempted to translate the gains of the civil rights movement into a program for economic justice. They wanted not just a basic income but a sufficient one one adequate not merely to survive, but to live a decent life, and maybe even a good one. The right-wing version of basic income, 
by contrast, wherein paltry lumps of cash replace public services and goods, is a uba not worth having. This version of basic income is a mechanism to streamline a more accurate word might be gut the welfare state in the name of libertarian ideas of freedom. People know what they need better than the state does, the argument goes, how people will be able to afford healthcare on $12,000 a year is less often addressed. Who exactly should get a basic income is another question. It's sometimes called a citizen's dividend, explicitly limiting recipients by nationality. More generally the universal is aspirational, basic income programs have only seriously been proposed at the national or local levels. So, as with other welfare programs, debates over basic income will undoubtedly be bound up with questions about nationality and migration. In the European context, we should be wary of the deployment of basic income to solidify fortress Europe as the refugee crisis intensifies. In the debates over the Swiss program, for example, Lucy Stam, a member of parliament for the right-wing Swiss People's Party, said he could imagine supporting UBA but only for the Swiss. Theoretically, if Switzerland were an island, the answer is yes, he said at the time. But with open borders, it's a total impossibility, especially for Switzerland, with a high living standard. Yeah, so um, that is, I think, points to the real, I think, problem with UBI, which is that it, I don't think it causes domestic problems, for instance, like deficit spending. I don't give a shit about that. But where it does create problems is, I think, where you interface with the outside world. Um, like, all of a sudden, Korea is making way more uh, plasma TVs because Americans can afford them now, for instance, right? Like you're putting all this consumer power democratically into people's hands. That's going to create, like, I mean, you might know this better than I do, but that seems like that's, if Nixon, for instance, um, at almost, or maybe the end of the height of American power, but way, when we were relatively more powerful um, than we are now, um, it, let's say he does even a really good UBI back in the seventies. That's on the backs of you know the rest of the world, right? Um, look, no, I I think um the it's actually sort of circular logic. What actually necessitates, which you know, in my view, makes some sort of UBI type program uh, inevitable in a consumption based you know economy, um, is that. As we've been talking about, uh, productivity and demand for labor, and so even with uh, you know quote unquote you know globalization and uh, outsourcing all these things, even there it's not like you just we buy from China is the stereotype, but no, it was uh, first it was Chinese you know labor, and then it moved on to other Asian countries, and it was like Bangladesh labor, and what they're do what they find is they move to a country. And they uh, get the cheap labor, and then the next generation has higher standards. Living, uh, living um, expenses and living expectations rise over time, and so they have to keep chasing around this cheaper labor. What happens is eventually they run out of the cheapest labor, and they just automate the thing. And there's robots making the, the TVs, you know, to continue your example. Um, and so, you know, I think that trend in itself is just playing out on a global scale and it necessitates these, you know, UBI programs themselves. Yeah, but wouldn't it, if, if one country does a UBI, isn't that going to, like, f isn't that going to create 
strain on supply chains? Uh, no, I, I don't no? think so. I, you know, I don't think, um, I think there are natural limits to how many TVs people need and the costs come down over time. And I, I you know, I don't, they're pretty cheap now. Um, but, but to this quote, you know, I do like, you know, they mentioned the citizens dividend again, whether you call it freedom or citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think, you know, reframing the I'll take people's is, dividend is important. Yeah. And people's, um, you know, I, I understand the, the criticism or the concern of being too nationalist, but also I think there's something to be said. Again, we've been talking about the national service. I think there's something to be said about the dignity of citizenship, um, which also gets to the, you know, some of these anxieties, I think, on the right when people are concerned about immigration. Obviously, the immigrants are used as a scapegoat, right, to justify the continuing economic policies that justify the rich uh, rather than, you know, deal with the actual underlying source of these trends. But um, But I think, you know, they've... Basically, the right has been beating down in these libertarian views, extreme libertarian views have been beating down what it means to be the state, which is the representation of the people. We've been outsourcing these jobs. Uh, people have seen their wages stagnate over decades. You know, they want to know that there is some sort of dignity, dignity in their citizenship. And this is also one way you can address that. Like, look, you know, this is what you get. We are a wealthy nation. This is how, you know, uh, you know, the fruits of our labor are distributed. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just a bit uneasy if that, like, we are a wealthy nation turns into, like, I don't know. Uh, it, it, to me, it's like, you, the second you do basic income in America, you have to start working on how you're going to spread this throughout the world more broadly. Uh, set a, set a more concise way and taking it back to, he had a quote in the book and he said, um, I might be paraphrasing, but what uh, essentially was he was saying was he was talking about the, um, you know, there's obviously an individualist streak, um, you know, in this country, an uh, individual mindset, particularly in the boomer generation over the last few decades. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, there's that individualist mindset versus problems that are collective in nature. Mm-hmm. Meaning, you know, things like this, meaning things like global warming, inequality, these are systemic problems. And we've gone through a generation, uh, this conservative generation, arguably tied to, you know, boomer demographics. I'm reading this book currently about it. I'll, uh, we may do another, we should do an episode on it maybe. But, um, but uh, you know, these are these individualist mindsets. And I feel like the things like citizens dividend, national service is sort of a nudge. Hey, look, we are... There is a country. There is something to be, you know, meant in being a citizen of this country and serving your part in voting and participating in the process and not just being a passive consumer, you know, that, uh, yeah. you know, just wants to live, you know, alone. I will say with regards to that national service, got to be compensated. Um, I don't like the Buttigieg talk about uh, volunteerism. Well, look, okay, so about the UBI, yeah. So I do think there would be some national uh, service component that would be useful uh, to to package this with. Uh, I think some sort of national service could actually help programs like UBI, Medicare for All, and free college tuition help uh, possibly come sooner and, and, and more robustly than they might otherwise. But I think, mm. I think right, I think you need to design the national service system in a way so that it's not means testing for another expense. You know, like there needs to be, you know, I think people should be compelled to serve in some way, but there should be plenty of exemption if you're of, you know, certain disadvantages, uh, you know, physical disability or whatever it may be. Uh, but also a, a number of unique and individual ways people can contribute to their society. Um, that doesn't mean necessarily work in a traditional sense, but maybe, you know, there are various ways people can contribute to their society. Right. 
And so the thing that I think, um, and you know, where Rutger um, might side with you on the, uh, in favor of retor- rhetoric in terms of the uh, nationalistic appeals, which I, I think is not that big of a, you know, a, a huge dis- area of disagreement. He does make a, maybe the most forthright case for open borders of, um, especially people who are who in the United States would consider themselves nominally to his left. Like Bregman just goes all out in support of open borders. He calls the border wage gap the most significant wage gap there is. And he says open borders. I forget the the figure, but he says it would contribute an extra, you know, like trillion many trillions of dollars extra to the economy yeah and the regular critique from the left on those sorts of arguments is that it shouldn't be up to how whether it makes money or not but at the same time it certainly helps um you know pad out an argument uh here's a little bit of uh, bregman on immigration uh, from this how to uh build a better world open borders mm-hmm. but this is so spectacularly counterintuitive at the moment mm-hmm. um i think i'm right that the book first came out in Dutch in, in uh, 2014, is that correct? Yeah. yeah. Since then, um, there's Two been years before the English. You know, a huge surge in right-wing populism, Trump's election, Brexit, building notion of walls, identitarianism throughout mm-hmm. Europe, um, and nativism. So it's you know, fair to say, I think, that the argument in favor of open borders is, is not actually winning the day, yeah. which is not to say it's wrong. Yeah. And it's... What I really wanted to ask you is, starting from where we are, rather than from in a kind of intellectual laboratory, how do you get to the point where, I mean, you, you deal with a lot of the myths about immigration, but they are very entrenched. How do you build a, an intellectual and, uh, narrative based, rooted in empiricism, but also in ideas and, 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 and emotions that will bring people to realize that as you say, that, that, that actually open borders are a massive generator of wealth. Well, I really think we need the historical perspective here. So my view as a historian is that history is the most subversive of all the sciences. The main message of history I is like that message. things can be different. Yeah. Right? There's nothing inevitable about the way we've structured our society and economy right now. So if you think about borders, for example, or the nation state, it's a fairly recent invention, you know, it's really a product of the 19th century. And for example, passports, they hardly existed at the beginning of the 20th century. And the countries that issued them, like Russia and the Ottoman Empire, were considered, you know, backwards countries. Um, So an interesting question always to ask as a historian is, how will people of the future look back on us? Because we can look back uh, on people in the Middle Ages, right? Yeah. And we, we look at, you know, those witch hunts and, and all those barbarian things that were going on. And we're like, oh, these people were terrible. We're so civilized right now. But then the, the question is, of course, how will they, what are the barbarian things we are doing right now? You know, let's say in the year 2200. What will they say about us? What's the most horrible thing we're doing right now? We just consider it common sense. Um, and borders might be one of those things because borders are responsible for the biggest you know, discrimination that's, that's going on. Uh, like 60% of your income is dependent on the fact where you, where you were born. It's, it's apartheid on a, on a global scale, basically. And most of the objections we have against immigration uh, 
they're all terrorists, they're all criminals, they don't work, they take our jobs, etc. I go over all of them yes. in their book. They, they destroy social cohesion. Many of them have actually also been adopted these days by the left. But if you look at the, at the actual evidence, there's not much there. There's really not, not much there. So to put it in its purest and ghastliest topicality, um, how would you, if you were confronted with a dismayed Brexit voter, mm -hmm. explain to them that open borders are a good thing? <laughs> that's a great that's a great question so i would i would use the language of patriotism that's the first thing this is often a problem with many people on the left and progressive is that they only use the language of care and of injustice yes. right and there's a certain part of the population that is receptive to that kind of question you say oh it's so horrible what's happening to these refugees or it's so horrible what's happening to these uh poor people we should help them but you don't win elections with that right so you need other things one thing you could do is to say, we're the best country on earth, yeah. right? And we can handle this. Like what Angela Merkel did in, in yeah. Germany, like we're shuffling us because we're, we're Germans, right? So the French couldn't shuffle this, they couldn't do it. Uh, <laughs> the, the British certainly couldn't do it, but we're Germans, we can handle this. Yeah. We're good at organizing stuff. That was a very patriotic statement. And uh, many people said that it would become our downfall. Well, last time I checked, she's still there. Yeah. So. Uh, and you know how well that ages, yeah. I think, is remains to be seen. Yeah, um, but you know he is great with the you know with the framing basically, and uh, the epilogue of the book, he you know has sort of a call to arms, and he talks about over you know the Overton window, aka uh, you know framing, and um, you know that's really what is at the heart of a lot of his um, you know analogies and, and comments. Yeah, and and the only other thing that makes me a little bit cautious about his argument is the openness to you know conditions upon um, citizenship, and I understand that this this, uh, this might be inevitable in certain respects, but you know like work it, it work requirements it basically creates a certain class of worker. And you get to, we get to exploit you a little bit more because you're this, uh, you're here not quite as a citizen yet. Um, so for, probably wouldn't be getting the UBI, for instance, right? You're that more precarious. You'll need to do jobs that, um, regular citizens that are established here with our great Medicare for all and UBI and, you know, decommodified housing. They get all that. Um, I'm a little bit cautious of that. But other than that, I think, um, He's very good at making the case for open borders, and the uh, and and at a time where I think it's very difficult to make a case for on practical in a, in a practical conversation for anything other than demilitarizing and humanizing the border. Look, I mean, I think I you know I think in term we were just talking about framing, and I think in terms of framing the realm of what's possible that you know, God, he's making a good argument. I think in reality. We're a utopia, right? And um, he's he's staking a flag on on one end, and um, that's good. I mean, I obviously I think you need healthy uh, and robust legal uh, immigration programs, and those programs. When what people don't understand is people have a uh, uh, a zero sum mindset when it comes to integration, immigration. Like, oh, we're letting you know a million people come here per year out of a country of 350 million or whatever. Yeah. And they're like, th that that's taking prosperity away from us. What they don't understand is they're not taking a piece of your pie. It's not being just, you know, redistributed in smaller pieces. That pie is growing. Right. Um, and so on a net net basis, you are better off. Now, 
you know, uh, in order to sustain those programs, uh, you do need, you know, certain social, you know, infrastructure and, and citizenship should have some dignity, meaning it comes with certain benefits like, you know, healthcare and education and things like that. But, um, uh, you know, if you think about it on, you know, on a sh- any short on a long term basis, you do need labor to be able to move around. But on a short term basis, like in a year, for example, if if you say think of the smallest country you could think of, you know, I don't know if they, you know, I don't know, name a small country. It doesn't matter. Maybe mm-hmm. there's a million people there. If they all came here in one year, guess what? Those tax receipts of that country, that country would go bankrupt. Right. You know, they would have no money. And also, where would they move? Say they all moved to New York City. Like, how would that work on housing prices? Like, you know, uh, housing has to be built, you know, like. In the short term, there are some practical realities that have to be worked out in, in situations like this. Um, but the truth is, is that peop- on a net-net basis, immigration makes everyone better off. Right. And, yeah, there shouldn't be borders. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, just to go over quickly the, the chapters here. There's 10 chapters. Uh, and we, uh, the Open Borders one comes a bit later. But there's the chapter 3. We've already talked about the first couple. The End of Poverty. Um, Goes into, you know, casino money, the different sort of case studies that w- lead to, turns out having more money, good for things. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> um, he cites a 13 to 14 IQ points uh, difference now IQs, you know. I have some billionaires that would like to disagree with that. Dubious, yeah, exactly. Dubious, uh, utility. You should meet but, the Koch brothers. Um, he also mentions, which I appreciate in, in sort of contrast to Pinker, he talks about the importance of, you know, childhood poverty. It's, it's, Fucking the idea that there is lunch debt in America, the most uh, the richest country on earth, is appalling. Um, but he and so like absolute poverty, he he takes issue with. But he also takes issue with fractal inequality um, and just uh, um, inequality in general, which means you know like a, a society is happier the less um, wealth stratified it is. Um, and the data plays that out. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they literally meaning meaning that inequality. even for the rich, regardless of how you want to you know avoid framing the situation, meaning like uh, you don't have to use the guillotine necessarily to say that even rates of um, what he uses like there's statistics for psychological disorders and things like that. You know, I mean, even the guillotine days in the French Revolution, like all the guys operating the guillotine, they weren't like poor people. They were either, you know, sh- like low shopkeepers or lawyers. Right? People with estates to redistribute. They were like, hey, that looks good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so, yeah, fractal inequality is an important thing. Um, chapter four is the bizarre tale of President Nixon and his basic income, which you know, talks about Nixon's basic income. $1,600 a year to family of four. Um, Nixon had the quote, Tory men and liberal policies changed the world, blah, blah, blah. But, um, you know, I mean... What, do you have any take on those? Well, so the chapter tells a story where Nixon is like, you know, he takes over from the Great Society, from LBJ, and there's all this social change. And uh, the UBI was a popular program. You know, Hayek, uh, you know, and, and these uh, conservative yeah. thinkers, Nobel Prize winning economists, um, had touted this idea. So he's like, yeah, we're going to do this. Uh, and and the, st- the chapter, you know, talks about him being on board, and there's this bill, uh, and then one of his advisors brings up some random story, yeah. you know, from like the 1800s about how some Victorian age, yeah, some Victorian age program went wrong. And, and he's like, no, you know what? Scrap it. And like total ginger heart. It was interesting. It is sort of dissatisfying. I feel like there must have been something else there swaying his, uh, you know, maybe that's exactly how it was. And he was that yeah. impressionable, but it is sort of dissatisfying. Unfortunately, um, the Nixon tapes weren't in operation yet. 
Uh, so we don't have tapes from that era. I, I was going to look into that. I'm like, damn, 1970. It's not it. Um, or 19. I what year was it? I'm not sure. Yeah, but it was anyway. It was pre the tapes. There's also the other case. Uh, one of the other case studies apparently showed an increase in the divorce levels. So like, uh, fuck that. Women are divorcing their husbands. There's no way we can give them the freedom to do that. Turns out that was a rounding error or something like that, or a, a Excel error, which is kind of like Rogart and Rivlin or whatever. Oh, yeah, and that was. PhD candidate found it. Yeah. Um, you know, and I will say as a criticism, and, uh, in, in, you know, look, forgive me if I'm mistaken, but I was pretty sure that when I went through, all of the case studies he cited were uh, resoundingly robust and properly executed. Uh, I have no doubt that they should be. Uh, but there was also been a lot of case studies that were uh incorrectly carried out or insufficient uh whether they were funded too low or weren't carried out long enough or given to a broad broad enough stretch of the population or you know weren't uh, given out to the right people under the right circumstances um and and i feel like he sort of glossed over that in that in a, such a way that it might hurt his argument but i feel like he would have done better to address those up front and say look you can't run you know uh you know, shitty experiments, basically, um, and expect to get, you know, good answers out of this. You have, it has to be done in the right way. It has to be done, you know, broadly and has to be a sufficient amount of income and for a sufficient amount of time, you know, for, for the effects to be realized. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think there have been criticisms of his, uh, case study selection a little bit. So it'd be interesting to see, um, that developed uh, a little bit more. Chapter five, a new figures for a new era, basically a critique of GDP, which I thought was interesting. Um, puts it in a cold war sort of wartime context, um, as, as if like that's what it's the best for showing. Um, I thought it was interesting that when it was originally being discussed in like the fifties, they compared it to a satellite that can oversee all of the country's production. Um, but, uh, do you have any comments on the GDP section? Uh, about the formulation of it as a statistic. About GDP as just like a metric we should not uh, deify so yeah, much. Yeah, look, I think, look, GDP as a useful metric, I think its evolution will be in that it's not an entire metric. You know, I think it's a, it's a great metric for valuing the amount of, you know, mass shit that is produced in this country and sold. But, um, you know, if people spending more on healthcare because, uh, you know, their pharmaceutical companies are you know, increasing the prices by a thousand percent, uh, increases economic, you know, uh, output. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that's, uh, very productive in, in a human way that we would consider it in the long run. And so I think, you know, people talk about changing a GDP, uh, calculation. I think it's more likely you would have GDP because it is useful for an economic sense, uh, for measuring things, but it would just be then, a part of a bigger weighting, you know, that includes other, you know, Gini coefficients or some sort of inequality or quality of life metrics, you know, right. uh, that balance that out, I think. Yeah. Um, so chapter six, a 15 hour work week, uh, basically it gets into the John Maynard Keynes prediction of leisure and then also the fear of leisure, uh, as by elites, um, and into the Jetsons. Uh, the amount of issues, I, I'm especially interested in this. And I, I do think the left should start talking about more about work week reductions. Um, but it, the different problems he says it could solve. Stress, which I think is fairly straightforward. People have to work less. Um, they'll be less stressed. Uh, climate, which I think is another thing. Um, less activity is 
generally good for climate. Um, accidents, straightforward. Unemployment, um, having to work less. You, I mean, un- not that unemployment's a huge problem here, although it depends what measure of unemployment you look at. Um, gender inequality. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't think we have any issues with a work week reduction. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I think it's nice to see Keynes so prominently figured as the mm-hmm. critique just mentioned, um, you know, a, sort of a background hero character. I would also argue that Martin Luther King, uh, you know, was so, was very great in this space too. Um, and, and, you know, arguing for it, but, um, but yeah, look, it's, uh, people are used to this 40 hour work week and it's so sacrosanct. You know, people are like, oh, then this is this is what they wrap their identity around now. But people don't realize that it used to be more than that. People right. fought for 40 and that was low. Right. That was low. And, and uh, guess what? Like banning child labor, uh, increasing the amount of time that young people are in school from 16 to 18 and then putting them in college. All that is is managing the demand and the labor, the, the, the supply of the labor force, uh, you know, with the demand. And removing people from that pool, and basically, you know, going from forty to something lower over time, um, you know, uh, makes a lot of sense, obviously. But um, it's uh, not as dramatic as people think. If we went from forty to, you know, twenty-five or twenty, you know, in, in a generation, people would be sticking to that. Like that is the benchmark of dignity in, in their work or whatever it may be. Right. Um, and well, there was also, uh, oh, fuck. He was talking about, um, oh, he, and he also, so he, uh, Bregman, so to counter that, you know, Keynes was like, people should be working less over time. And he says that one reason that that has not been the case, um, because the, at the heart of that statement is Keynes looking at productivity and saying, yeah. you know, uh, mapping that out into the future and saying, you know, we would be able to produce this current income with, uh, much less inputs, i.e. labor, right. people, um, over time. Therefore, we could support the current output with much less of the current people working to, you know, to do so. Um, implicit in that is assuming that uh, in that trade-off that the more productive you get, you get that leisure time, you get right. that time off. And so what Bregman is saying, we've essentially traded that. You don't get that time back, you get additional consumption power. And to... Uh, go hand in hand with that to entice and encourage that uh, wanting that additional you know power instead of i.e. taking having more free time each week going to your employer and spending that time working so you have extra cash to go buy stuff means you have to encourage this consumption economy and people wanting to go out and and buy you know more and more shit right and and important to note in any discussion of uh, production and wages is that they decouple basically around the time that um, the Mount Pelham Society, yeah. Surprisingly, those guys at free, uh, Bregman cites the uh, Friedmanite neoliberals. Meaning, meaning the more productive the economy got, those uh, those benefits were going uh, more and more to the actual labor force that were producing those those productivity increases, um, and eventually all of those additional benefits from productivity were going to the capital. Right. holders into the to the managerial class do you remember that note by an analyst that's like god damn it the the owners of capital get shafted again do you recall oh, i sent you a, a research note from, from yeah a, from a major bulge bracket bank i forget what i think it's, it's like, like damn it more of it go into labor as if that's a problem in america exactly yeah <laughs> uh 
it was like people paying their their employees more and they're like what why do we have to give more to labor why can't we go more to <laughs> shareholder buybacks or whatever yeah exactly the, the real productive stuff so yeah chapter six which now work week um uh chapters uh seven is basically his restating restating of the david graber bullshit jobs thing um talks about certain jobs like um sanitation has an impact when you strike and if you're for instance a banker in ireland uh, people will just do ious at the pub um and uh that was a crazy story that he shared yeah do you want to hear a little bit more about that that was pretty interesting yeah he talked about like there's this case study i think it was in the 70s in ireland or something and um yeah and basically all the bankers went on strike you know as a you know maybe a public sector you know employer like a teacher might today uh, in Ireland in the 70s, a bunch of bankers did. And they're like, you know what? We're not going to have banking services. And the public's like, all right, guess what? We don't need you. And they actually had this sort of, you know, barter type economy develop. And, and the pubs were playing like a surprisingly central role in helping people, you know, exchange value and, and keep the economy afloat. Yeah. here we, He talks about that a little bit in this how-to. Uh, I will say I think it's limited example, or maybe temporal as well. You know, maybe that doesn't last forever. But I think it is powerful in that it shows you the city. You know, if if sanitation, another example that he he brings up, if something like sanitation workers go on strike or teachers, society is going to immediately feel that that is massive impact. But obviously, they see if segments of the financial sector go on strike, life. Uh, goes on surprisingly sometimes yeah or uh, flight attendants or uh, the flight staff as we found out in the uh, shutdown crisis yeah exactly well that's the thing people people can believe in meritocracy if it's a fair meritocracy Um, so that's what I'm really trying to do in this book is that uh, we often say that you know uh, the the stronger shoulders should carry the you know the most the heaviest weights and actually the the really stronger shoulders that carries us all are the teachers, are the garbage collectors, are the nurses, because if they would go on strike, that'd be a disaster. Maybe, maybe to, you know, one final story that I have in the book about this is um, there were two strikes of, of, of different professions in the 60s. You know, one was of garbage collectors, strike losses for uh, six days, total emergency has York, to be declared in New York. Yeah. yeah, Total emergency, turns out we can't deal without garbage collectors. Um, the other strike was of bankers two years later in Ireland. Um, and the bankers, they were angry that their wages were not keeping up with inflation. Uh, and they said, you know what, you'll have it, we'll go on strike. And all the experts predicted disaster. This was supposed to be like a heart attack for the economy. Strike started, nothing much happened. And lasted for six months. And yeah. pubs turned out to be very important. Yeah, this right? is the hilarious part, is that actually... Uh, so the strike lasted for six months. The economy just kept growing. After six months, the bankers came back and said, all right, all right, all right, we'll get back to work. So, and what the Irish did is, is really interesting. What they did is they sort of built their own money system. So they started writing checks to each other, IOUs, on, 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 on the backs of cigar boxes and on toilet paper. And uh, there were 15,000 pubs back then in Ireland. And sort of the pub owners became the new bankers. Um, there's one historian who later wrote that if you sell liquids to other people, 
you probably also know something about the liquidity of your clients. <laughs> so these pub owners were the perfect new bankers and the system worked quite well, actually. Oh, and uh, yeah, businesses just, just kept operating. Nowadays, if you ask people who lived through that period, you'll find out that many people just won't remember yeah. uh, because it didn't make much of an impact. I mean, now that Ireland's basically owned by banks, um, I mean, maybe that's a dark irony on it now, but it's basically a tax haven. Yeah, um, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They they have a very favorable corporate taxes. I think it was actually um, maybe it was Iceland. I was thinking of it. It was one of those countries up there. I think it might have been Iceland, where like in the uh, in the two thousand eight financial crisis, it was great. They instead of bailing their people out, they were just like, "Well, we're just gonna wipe out all this debt." Basically, you know, we're <laughs> jubilee, baby. Let them let it go. I mean, it's a biblical concept, folks. That's. You want to talk about, you know, speaking to people in languages they understand? Uh, let's bring Jubilees back. Jesus was a fan. Um, uh, student debt, Jubilee, medical. A funny, fun fact about um, the Bernie Student College thing is when that was announced, um, uh, Michael Brooks, host of Michael Brooks Show, which I also produce, uh, it tweeted out that, um, you know, it'd be nice to see this happen for medical debt as well. And one of Bernie's policy people added him with a winky face. So a little nice. sneak peek at what might be coming down the pike from the Bernie Sanders crew there. Um, yeah. Um, it was uh, another thing about Bregman that, you know, going back to, um, and I, 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 I wish, uh, so I listened to the audiobook, so I didn't read the book. I can't follow the source. Right. Um, but he had a quote when we were talking about reducing the, you know, spreading the labor around, reducing labor hours. You know, he was talking about how Henry Ford and, and Kellogg actually experimented with eight and six hour days and they were very successful with it. But then he had this anecdote about Apple employees working 90 hours a week and, quote, loving it in the 1980s. And then he said, researchers found that the, if they only worked 40 hours a week instead of 90, we might have gotten the Mac, the first Mac, one year earlier. Now, I thought that was really interesting. I wrote it down in my notes, but I, I, I have no idea what that, like how you would even... That Psych seems like an ex a pretty cavalier extra extrapolation. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's a big problem in software in general is the crunch, which is especially in video games. Right before release date, everybody's working like insane hours to the point of like putting your health in jeopardy. Um, and I mean, this is it, likewise. I mean, you see that in finance too. Um, and it's not healthy and it's hard to know how to manage it, but it's basically the way the dictates of capitalism in each industry. Well, especially, especially in computer science where there's a shortage of labor, which necessitates that. Like, yeah. That's why wages are high is because it's this emerging science and the economy wasn't, you know, it didn't train enough people for that. So people are getting, you know, yeah. these massive paydays in that field. And that's why there's all this free propaganda about like free, please code so we can, uh, well, exactly. And then once they do that, then you bring the price of it down mm -hmm. and the wages come down over time. So it's again, you know, it's you're always chasing these returns around the corner and eventually you're going to run out of those, you know, cigarette butts and you're going to need some sort of, you know, just straight up you know, some sort of distribution program to support your consumption economy. Right. And so uh, chapter 80 moves on race against the machine where he gets into the automation, uh, automation issues and has one of the parts that I actually really dis disagree with Bregman on. So he goes into this spiel about future 
uh, futurologist Ray Kurzweil, who I think is kind of a quack, although to be fair, I haven't really looked into his stuff. Um, but he's a big singularity guy. Uh, and, uh, and you know, I, I, I don't mind reading stuff like that or the Michio Kaku um, you know, we're gonna have space elevators that can fly us to Mars, and you know, Kurzweil. Like they both have some interesting. Like they're, uh, you know, I wouldn't total. I wouldn't discredit them. What I would say is that uh, their predictive abilities are based solely on the technology, and what they fail to consider are social and political and economic considerations that would impact that evolution. Right. So, uh, Kurz or. Uh, um, Bregman says, you know, you know, they're talking about Moore's line and computing power. And Bregman says, you know, it's worth pointing out that uh, computing power is not the same thing as intelligence. But still, we dismiss his predictions at our peril. After all, it wouldn't be the first time that we underestimated the power of exponential growth. And uh, this is one page 191, he says, of the paperback. Uh, this time is different. The million dollar question is, what should we do? What new jobs will the future bring? And more importantly, will we want to do those new jobs? And to me, I don't, I think that's, that's not precise. The, the, the real question is who owns the shit, right? And whose benefit do the dividends, if we want to go back to that term, accrue to? It's not about like, um, I think he skips, uh, skips over that. And, I think generally he, this book doesn't focus enough on that aspect of it. Is it Jeff Bezos, um, who owns everything? Is it, you know, is it, uh, Mark Zuckerberg with his new Facebook bucks? Um, is he in control of all this? And I think that's what Bregman doesn't, like, that's, that's my million dollar question. And Bregman wants to kind of, and I, and I kind of appreciate it. And as he said, this book is a little bit out of date because you have AOCs that, have like come around to imagine a little bit more. Um, but th- then the rubber hits the road about those things. Yeah, I will. Um, you know, when we first started talking about UBI, one of the first things, and when I talk about the subject, I always go to the composition of our GDP, 70% consumption based. Um, and I, I don't think that's a term that he brought up at all. Consumption? Th- or just the, that statistic. Like, I feel like when you're talking about UBI, pointing right. out, FYI, seven tenths of every dollar spent, you know, in calculating this GD- GDP figure is consumption based. Um, you know, in the velocity of money argument, right? That right. the original Wolf of Wall Street or whatever uh, guy it was. That's it, uh, no, not Jordan Belfort. Uh, uh, the original uh, uh, Wall Street. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Gordon Gecko. Gordon Gecko. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, that that is the economics 101. I feel like Brug, Bregman did not make that point. I mean, he look, he made a great case and he's talking about it. And as you said, it seems to be like a, a collective, you know, a sort of mosaic approach, at, you know, the best of each subject and in, in making the case, which is, look, I applaud the guy. Great. More of him. I hope he gets a bigger and bigger platform to do this. Um, you know, he can he's clearly talented. Uh, but, uh, you know, I feel like he didn't. You know, and maybe that's because the economic thing, maybe that doesn't appeal. Maybe that's not as, you know, sexy or something. I'm not sure. But, you know, to me as a student, you know, someone who enjoys, you know, studying economics, it's like, how can this is inevitable because of that logic? I don't know how you could possibly square that circle without this. Right. 
Yeah, okay. So I think we've just about come to the end. I mean, we've already, chapter 9 is beyond the gates of the land of plenty, where he makes his really, really strong case for open borders. And it's not just the economic case. He makes, I mean, he makes the world moral case by way of economics. You know, it's economic apartheid, literally, right? Like, right. The, like we talk about, you know, is NAFTA good for the United States or Mexico? It's like, well, the problem is, and actually this is frankly the problem with Elizabeth Warren, which is when you make it nationalistic, you obscure the fact that capitalists' interests go cross borders and so do labors, right? In reality, it's experienced less zero-sum by nation and more zero-sum by are you an owner of capital or are you a laborer? And the way we look at these trade deals in general is kind of a problem. And that's the same way I think I prefer you know Bernie's approach than Elizabeth Warren, who kind of talks... For like, when she talks about the Green New Deal, for instance, it's all about how we need America to be the leader and shit like that. And it's like, I'd much rather us talk about like, how about we just cooperate to like, for instance, I don't give a shit about China taking intellectual property, um, especially if it's in in um, in climate change related and energy related stuff. I think we need like all hands on deck on this sort of stuff. So be, thinking more cooperatively. I just think is a better approach than being competitive about it. But maybe Elizabeth Warren's right and she'll win the presidency on that. Look, I think there's something I mean, you're right. And you would hope that you wouldn't have to make appeal to people's interests and so, your or, or certain instincts. And you should hope that you can make a moral case and then that would be enough. Um, and that's ideal, of course. Um, but I think there's something to be said when you, if you're trying to push bold legislation, you know, if you have to appeal to national pride, there's something to be said. There's something to be said, and you know, uh, like, like as I said, dignity and citizenship, if if you want to call it that or whatever. Um, but uh, you know, if you want to say, hey, look, uh, there's something. It means something to be a citizen of this great country. It means that we don't have, you know, people going bankrupt you know, because they need health care. People can, you know, not worry about getting sick. They can contrib- contribute to the economy. They're not like sleeping in the streets. They're not living in, you know, uh, po- you know desolate poverty. Um, it means something. There's value to that. And it's because we're so great or whatever. You know, this is, we. Sh- you know, you can have pride in, in, in your society when you have, you know, if you're, if, you know, if it's warranted, if you're doing things well. I mean, you know, there's something to be said there. Uh, and, you know, and I think politically that's sort of a reality you'll be unable to avoid. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, at Orwell in uh, the beginning of The Lion and the Unicorn begins it uh, writing. And that, that Lion and the Unicorn is actually a case for, um, frankly, uh, if you wanted to term it dangerously, a term of nationalistic socialism. I mean, he would probably term it patriotic. The distinction between patriotic and nationalism he makes being that uh, nationalistic is offensive and patriotism is defensive. I don't know like how one is more bellicose than the other. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, I mean, if you want to make that distinction, fine. I mean, Orwell does. So, I mean, there's your uh, argument from authority. Or just dignity. Look, you know, I mean, patriotism, dignity. So, you know, I, I could see one is more offensive rather than defensive. Yeah, but like, you know, we're tra- talking about like, should we try to stand up to nationalism? Uh, this in, essay is kind of interesting because uh, Orwell, Orwell begins it. Uh, As I write, highly civilized human beings are flying overhead trying to kill me. This is written during World War II, uh, during the Blitz, Um, and Orwell was in London. They do not feel any enmity against me as an individual, nor I against them. They are only, quote, doing their duty, as the saying goes. 
most of them, I have no doubt, are kind-hearted, law-abiding men who would never dream of committing murder in private life. On the other hand, if one of them succeeds in blowing me to pieces with a well-placed bomb, he will never sleep any the worse for it. He is serving his country, which has the power to absolve him from evil. And I think uh, that recognition uh, of nationalism's power is as eloquent as uh, any that I've read. Um, by the way, if you want to hear our Orweller uh, series, patreon.com slash literary hangover. Um, but so, yeah. Uh, so anyway, I, I, I do appreciate that Bregman goes into the open border arguments because, frankly, I think Bernie could have done more in 2016 and could be doing more now to specifically... Challenge uh, the framing on the issue. Yes, challenge Trump's framing on the economic zero-sumness of this. And that might mean he has to go to sort of like, uh, you know, quantitative, uh, you know, uh, arguments that actually they contribute to tax rolls and whatever, blah, 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 right? But you got to do it. You're right. I mean, and he could totally tie it into his core message, which is that this is a scapegoat. You know, people... Uh, right. In exactly. order to just, oh, wow, wages haven't fucking moved for, you know, the the median income for the last 40 years. Uh, why? Why? It, no, the system is just yeah. fine. It's the it's the immigrants. It's the immigrants, you know, right. doing the jobs that most people don't want to do otherwise. It's like it's not like wages were just about to start pairing with productivity, right. but we like more immigrants started coming. It's, right. It's why that that message resonates so much because they already feel that something isn't working and they don't know what it is because people keep telling them everything's working fine. All the, you know, the, the key GDP indicators or whatever, you know, unemployment is down. So they're like, well, what's the issue? It's gotta be something else. And it's not the system. The system's great. Oh, it's the immigrants. Right. And it's not though. Yeah, exactly. So, um, chapter 10, how ideas change the world. He goes into how, when prophecy fails, when like end of the world prophecies fail, how do people rationalize it? Makes the point that I think is important that educated people are better at lying to themselves. Uh, you're better at finding rationalizations for believing the wrong thing because you're just more cultured in those sorts of arguments. Uh, it's dangerous. Um, and, uh, um, it goes into the sort of Friedman again and Hayek and how they won. Um, I think again, we've already talked about that, but I don't think they just won because they had the best ideas. And I don't even think Bregman would say that, but that's kind of the implication of his argument until you start talking about power imbalance, um, balances, right? Um, yeah, well, I, you know, I think it's interesting too to look at it, um, generally, gen, uh, generationally. So you sort of see at a, if you zoom out, you see these swings between like progressive eras and conservative eras, right? There's the progressive era that lasted, you know, from the forties roughly to, you know, 1980s or, you know, early in you know, 79 ish or something. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, in the last 30 or 40 years have been this conservative era. I think, uh, demographics explain a lot of that in the baby boomer, uh, glut in that. And so, you know, it's, you know, you look at the academics um, and they provided the justification for this, this movement, you know, or this change in thought. But, um, yeah. you know, they might have just been, you know, fig leaves or whatever, you know. Uh, but they are important. And I, I probably have maybe downplayed the importance of them a little bit too much in this. I do think ideas are important. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important that and I think AOC, like I I sort of hinted at earlier, I have some criticisms of AOC, but it's important that she's bringing these ideas to Congress, frankly, like a very conservative institution. Yeah. Well, and to, to 
further the point when I was talking about generation and the boomer. So you, basically is, you know, you see that you have the generation preceding them going through the world wars and the depression. They know the value of what your country can do and what it means to be a citizen and serving your role in this national, you know, service. Um, the boomers were born after the, all of that. They were born at sort of the height, you know, of this, this post-World War, you know, two world wars uh, down, you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, benefiting from Europe being destroyed and rebuilding, you know, and basically all this gold and, and you know, circ- monetary inflow into the United States. Uh, they benefited from this and, and this, you know, great society that was unfolding before them. They didn't really know that hardship. And so, you know, they sort of it became antisocial and they were like, well, this is, you know, uh, what has government done for me lately, basically? And, you know, now you have this generation that's raised on the global financial crisis too, you know, if you want to call it the dot com bust and then uh, the housing bust and the, the crash in 2008. Uh, and of course, you know, the tragedy that is the current situation, uh, you know, with our reality television president right? and people are understanding that there is a role, there is something, you know, here that, uh, you know, it, that we need. And just the flaunting of the fact that we have endless cash for war, right? Let's get the tanks. Right. How, you know, we'll spend four or five, six trillion in the Middle East, you know, oh, we'll just do, uh, the, lo- a tax cut on a whim that costs, you know, $2 trillion or whatever, uh, at least I saw as much as like, you know, five, you know, five trillion. And then, uh, you know, oh, student debt, eliminate that 1.6 trillion. Whoa, 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 whoa. Well, how are we going to pay for this? What's going on here? It's like, what about the bailouts that were, you know, multiple trillions of dollars in the wars? I mean. Yeah. Um, I just want to circle back quickly. Uh, I just remembered a certain thing. We were talking about, you know, I'm a bit wary of Bregman's openness to certain uh, conditional citizenship or uh, transitional citizenship programs he he says well it's better than nothing um which is you know an argument um i think it's i i i would um need to research before i was felt confident to argue against that but there remind me of this article on politico from uh this was about a year ago politico changes what if you could get your own immigrant headline and the idea was uh then it was you could sponsor an immigrant, right? And it was like you'd be a sponsor family for an immigrant. And but it it it, it creates a real Downton Abbey, I think, scenario again. Like the, like it's just it, it, that stuff just makes me really iffy. And I would, and I don't know what the solution is, right? Like, um, because I do think in no feasible way outside of a political revolution, overthrowing like certain parts of uh you know uh the united states government branches of it um you're not gonna have open borders but i don't know what are you gonna say there well i would just say that i i think the idea has merit but i don't think it is useful as a uh, an alternative to a state solution you know like obviously there should be a robust program done at a national level for immigration or asylum or whatever it may be but if you want to have additional policies where people can, you know, volunteer and if you, you know, like rather than force it on people, if people can say this is, you know, I want to, you know, do something and contribute. And I also think there's something to be said about integration, right, rather than if an immigrant comes here and they just are isolated in community versus living with a host family for some period of time. Right. Um, 
If people want to volunteer additionally, incrementally, I think that's great. You know, I don't think that you can say we're doing that instead of, you know, in lieu of having a national program. And you know what I want? And, and Bregman makes a critique of the left that they always say what they're against, not what they're for. And I think that, uh, that, for har- framing. that harm them in Brexit, for instance. Um, uh, how about say I'm for, like, we've both been to Europe. European Union crossing the border, right? Like, fairly easy thing. Um, like we've been in the channel bus, take a right. bus. And you don't even have to take your shoes off when you fly. It's crazy over there. Yeah. Um, that's what we should, I want that with Mexico. I want that with Uruguay. I want that with all those motherfuckers. I mean, not Brazil right now. Cause they're, they're on timeout with the fascism business. Um, and probably a few others out there doing the fascism, but, but Mexico is okay. AMLO, I'm a bit worried about AMLO. AMLO Got your eye on him? I got my eye on Amlo because he comes in, he says a lot of the right things, but there, I, a few of my followers have uh, messaged me with things I have not followed up on about Amlo that like maybe suggest he's taken a bit of a neoliberal turn, but um, don't take that as just you, you do your own research on that because I haven't done it yet. Yeah, I mean, obviously people are seeing that. That's the writing on the wall. You're seeing that in the current debates here is, you know, Bernie Sanders has already run it's already won the democratic debates are who can out bernie bernie you know who can and medicare for all people are just like oh just say medicare for all even if the devil's in the details obviously and what actually that means or medicare for all if you want it you know if as Buttigieg says or you know um uh you know people are so you're already seeing that being co-opted you know like people see that that is where the direction is going Exactly. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and then we just have the epilogue. Um, and we've af- actually just kind of touched on that. Um, is Bo- uh, not Buttigieg. Redger Bregman. Um, he's, so many bees. He, he takes an attack. He attacks what he calls underdog socialism, which is this always like you're playing from behind sort of thing. And, and I do think the left needs to, to, get, to know that we have the people on our side and speak with that confidence. That's why... Um, I'm going to disappoint some people here is I don't think Andy no should have been punched in Portland recently or wherever the fuck he was. Did you hear about this? No, I have not heard. He's a, he's a, a sort of crypto reactionary uh, propagandist that uh, works for Quillette, but he was doing a proud boy or a Patriot prayer rally covering a Patriot prayer rally. And he's a big anti Antifa guy. Okay. And some Antifa people milkshaked and then silly stringed him. But then this other guy ran up and just decked him. And my, my defense of, I, I love milkshaking. I think milkshaking is a great thing. Milkshake fascists. If I could milkshake somebody, even if I had to spend a few nights in jail, I would do it. Um, like milkshake Trump, for instance, or I, I don't think you should do it to people who are margin. I think you should do it to people who are genuinely like, bad right like um like for instance like almost overt white supremacy um neo-nazis i think but the milkshake thing and you definitely have to film it too that's part of the whole thing but a milkshake is a it's not meant to harm it's meant to shame well that's yeah that's the difference is humiliation over violence exactly okay and and that's why like okay if you want to say milkshaking someone is battery or egging like the guy that kid in exactly (laughs) that kid's a hero these people are heroes i genuinely believe that they're showing they're those are positive role models, right? Well, they don't want to be humiliated. Their shit is all about being strong, man. And, you know, like. Exactly. So, like, my thing is, like, you got. It's about not harming, but. Okay, so I'm a left wing um, producer, someone say propagandist, right? 
Let's say someone wants to egg slash milkshake me. Please do that if you're a fascist, right? If you think I'm too like supportive of of uh, like open borders, for instance, or uh, or um, like even I say concentration camps. That's like here's where I dwell. Here's where I hang out. The thing is, is I will be. Uh, please film it because that will be good for my media career. Because guess what? I'm not ashamed of those things. The thing about milkshaking is, is it only affects people when they know that they have something to be ashamed of, right? Or you get egged, right? Like, otherwise, okay, a fascist wants to egg me. I'm going to get sympathy. That's what happens, right? Like, and, and even certain people have sympathy for the fascist that says, like, he's been doing anti like that Australian politician that got egged. He's an anti-Muslim bigot. It's as simple as that. Uh, I mean, look it up for yourself if you don't believe me uh, and and use as a mark on my credibility. I'm fairly confident you'll come to the same conclusion. And that kid put the egg on his head, right? And, like, certain people might have sympathy for that, but then you're like, oh, wait, actually, that motherfucker, like, incited violence against Muslims. Yeah. Fuck that guy. You're going to laugh before you feel, uh, you know, the same that you would if he you, he was assaulted, you know, physically, which and, is which you were saying, like, uh, you feel no shame. So it, it's not effective. And so if the response is overdone, then that person is not going to feel shame for that. They're right. going to be sort of like a mini martyr. You know, they're going to be like, I was assaulted for this that I shouldn't have been assaulted. And they're right. They shouldn't have assaulted. They should, exactly. have, they should be humiliated and pointed out and contradicted and proved wrong. But they shouldn't be physically assaulted, you know. Ed Miliband, uh, you know, our good pal, the former labor leader, uh, here's him getting egged, right? And nobody freaked out about the violence of the right. First of all, we ran a very good campaign. We talked to 30,000 voters since January, talking about labor's plans on jobs, apprenticeships, housing, the things that matter to people. We've also got people, I think, who thought... We've also... Just egged him? On his shoulder at that. Uh, Not even in the face. Obviously not, not one of my fans. No, no. See, so he just laughs it off, right? Because guess what? He's not ashamed about what he's speaking about. He's not saying like, actually, let's be very suspicious of our Muslim neighbors. Let's um, restrict immigration. Let's, you know, like it's it, let's be British first or whatever the fuck, right? Also, notice you don't feel sorry. I don't feel sorry for Ed Miliband there. I don't feel sorry. It is sort of like you know humiliating or embarrassing or whatever. But I don't feel sorry for him all. I'm you know. Uh, but if someone came up and violently punched him in the face, even if I wasn't agreeing with this guy, I'd be like, oh, man, that oh, was kind of uncalled right. for. Like, yeah. what the fuck, you know? And so, yeah, so that's why I think, like, Andy No is a borderline, I mean, he's, fr- like, t- Tiny Toesy, Toesy, uh, who's been arrested for violent fascism. Um, you know, Andy Noes gave him good press coverage. So, like, crypto-fascist is not, a crypto-fascist propagandist is not, I, in my opinion... Uh, an unfair label for Andy No. Uh, and when you punch him in the face on camera, you give him exactly what he wants. You give him content. He needs to do his job. I mean, he's made so much money off of this. If he, if he would have just been milkshaked, that is, guess what? That's content for me. That's something I can play on Majority Report and be like, this is very funny. I feel like humor just broadly is so underused in the political spectrum, you know, like, uh, uh, arena and yeah. it should be used i mean here in humiliation that's a form of comedy but you know it's important and this is not to say that um this is not to criticize antifa broadly i think there's certain members certain parts of black Bloc that i think are counterproductive but i think antifa itself is nothing more 
or less than a societal uh, sort of antibody response to existing fascism. I think we have existing fascism uh, in uh, America today. I think you're going to see people react negatively to that. And I think that should be, I think if you want to see that go away, you should deal with the fascism. And I'll also say to people though, on the other hand, um, it, it might technically be battery to milkshake, say Donald Trump or, uh, Stephen Miller or any other member of the administration. And look, the more power they have, the better, right? Um, if you can milkshake a Coke brother, do it. Um, but hmm. know that that might technically be battery. Like these, this is the law, right? And, uh, we haven't done an episode on Thoreau's civil disobedience now, but that's part of it. And it's our job and my job specifically as a sort of member of the left wing media to, you know, um, come to those people's defense and like as the extent I can share a GoFundMe or something for them, um, do it. But it's it might hurt to do this. You have to know that going. I don't want to lie to people beforehand saying, oh, no, it's don't it, it's it's nothing more than a woman throwing a drink on, on a man at a bar. It's no, the law is going to look at it a little bit. You differently. may be restrained physically and yeah, there will be legal consequences. Yeah. And these are fascists. They might like that little kid, that kid in Australia got the kick, shit kicked out of him by those guys. Um, but Mandela went to jail. You know, Rosa Parks, uh, everyone, you know, was persecuted at hey, the time. Hey, if you can put your body on the line, um, uh, try to do it on camera. Uh, that good. picture of Bernie getting dragged away in handcuffs? I mean, look, that's, let's be, fa- let's face it, that's political capital. Um, it's crazy on the right, like my grandpa on, you know, first off, the right has been, you know, radicalizing old people on Facebook. But uh, my grandpa sharing, they shared that picture of Bernie getting dragged off. But they're like, this is Bernie. He was protesting um, desegregating student housing or some shit like that. Right. It's like, what? That's like the fucking. Uh, That's like, earned media, baby. Yeah. Or no, it was the building of like, you know, some sort of housing. But it was so it was so misconstrued. You know, I got one more little section of Bregman that I think, um, you know, so I'm going to give Bregman a thumbs up. I am very skeptical of UBI at our point in history. I don't think that's all Bregman brings to the table. Uh, but I think, and I w- will concede that a lot of th- what he brings to the table, um, comes from his, you know, being a magazine writer and bringing other people's ideas to the table. No, tr- no problem in that. I'm just saying that exploitation is inherent to our capitalist economy. Um, and, but he also, he, I like this message he gives here, which is, um, sort of advice. And he has an advice for moderates, uh, that I think is, um, important uh and it's one that i definitely co-sign oh do you have anything to say before we uh i was gonna say that i also um you know i also give it a thumbs up um you know it's a he's a fantastic messenger Uh, i hope as i already said that he gets is is given a bigger platform in some way Mm um you know this is uh it's a it's going to be a very politically tricky you know, economic change, uh, but also yeah. unnecessary. It's just hard. I don't, if I just think from like a first principles, you know, basis from economic, you know, 101 and, 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 and reason up from there, it's hard for me to, you know, not come to this as some sort of solution, you know, as yeah. a government policy. I agree. Um, um, so, you know, you need people out here making this case. Uh, yeah. And I think that's why I, um, 
I feel, and I, I, I hear Rutgers' argument that the left needs to el- um, elaborate their version of what a UBI should look like, and I, and I kind of do that. I, I spend some time of my, propag- my, some of my propagandizing time doing that. Um, you know, as in like purely additive universal for everyone regardless of what kind of benefits whether that's you know certain tax write-offs or social or you know disability insurance right don't give a fuck give it to everybody um i think it is inevitable so i want to work on the other things i want to make healthcare decommodified i mean i always talk about this but when i was in france and a um, person i was with uh shout out i had a health scare Went in, went out free. The the idea that your money is no good here is something that needs to be extended uh, throughout society. And then we can start talking about giving everybody... Um, I mean, well, we can give everybody money first, but then we can start talking about the other things, like the uh, attacking the welfare state. Um, but Breckman here... Oh, uh, do you have anything you want to plug? Twitter or the uh, newsletter? Uh, so we have the information in newsletter. There hasn't been uh, much in the last six months. There's probably coming something coming soon. Um, It'll be a good resource for uh, the yeah, election run up. Pr- yeah, we're going to do more for the election. We're probably it used to be weekly. It'll probably be you know maybe monthly or uh, with some one off things. Uh, also, I'm going to write something about you know a longer narrative on power. Of, power in america chris has been reading uh robert caro yeah lyndon baines johnson it helped me formulate well you know and i had these thoughts over a year ago well before i started the books but it was interesting just to see someone write a book about power as a topic uh i hadn't you know seen it through that lens but um it, it i just feel like it's a useful narrative across all of these things we're talking about now um you know and, and you know why things are uh the way they are currently so uh, that that will be you know maybe something related to the newsletter you know maybe something longer form at some point. Cool. All right. So uh, and I'll just say if you have some extra cash lying around and if you don't, well, look. Here's the thing. I and even if you're already a patron, uh, here's a little secret. Um, I haven't been super diligent in making sure certain tiers get certain content. Everybody gets it, even if you go under the four dollar minimum. If you want to come aboard. For under $4, come aboard. Um, Patreon.com slash literary hangover. Now, I want to get to Rutgers' message to the moderates that I teased earlier um, as our way out. But uh, thank you, Chris, for joining me once again. Happy to do it. Uh, And uh, we will see you again uh, in a few weeks. Uh, Let's have another final round of... uh, Yes, I see a gentleman there. Uh, just, Just there. No, no, yeah, just, that's it. Hi, um, thanks for everything tonight. Um, I was just wondering, so you've said that you um, kind of represent a movement. What would your advice be to everyone here on how to kind of take your ideas forward and to actually kind of enact them in the world? Mm-hmm. Can I answer that one immediately? Yeah, go for it, yeah. Okay, so the first thing is, if you're a moderate, stop that. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, <laughs> because you really can't afford to be one right now. If you're young in, in this day and age, the, the challenges that lie ahead of us are so immense. The transformation of the economy that we need is so radical. 
uh, that just tinkering around the edges just won't do it. And it doesn't matter if you see yourself as a left-wing or a right-wing person. It really doesn't matter because the timetable for... I thought I was done, but if you're a right-wing person, just chill. Anyway. Or climate change, it's just being set by reality. We need to act and we need to act quickly. 